Welcome to episode 42 of Military Veterans Podcast, where we talk to veterans to learn about their stories and experiences. And today we're joined by Marty Strong. Hey, Marty. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you today? I'm doing really well. It's early here in the US, but so far so good. Well, I thank you for getting up nice and early. I'm sure you do that anyway, as we learn about who you are and where you come from. Um, but you mentioned America. So so whereabouts are you in this world? We don't need the street name, just uh, just the ballpark. I'm in Virginia Beach. So it's on the east coast of the state of Virginia, about 250 miles south of Washington, D.C. Nice. That is nice because I've been there one time uh, and it was an amazing morning walk across the beach. So uh, it's a lovely area to, to live in. So we are doing a remote recording. And for whatever reason, I have no idea why, my camera looks terrible today. So I apologize for the recording aspect, but your camera looks really sharp. So if you've not watched this on YouTube, jump on, have a look at Marty because he looks sharp. <laughs> yeah, maybe my camera's bad. And I just look that good. Maybe, or the filters have got that good. I'm joking, I'm joking. I need filters on mine. Great. Well, Marty, well, I'm really excited to learn about your time in the military. Um, but we do have those four questions that we have at the beginning of every episode. So let's start with the first question is, uh, when did you join the military? Well, I officially joined the military in 1975 on a, what the U.S. Navy calls the early entry program. So I was 16 years old. I forged my name on the documents while the Navy recruiter sat in another room knowing what I was doing because my mother was an alcoholic and not really capable of, of signing the paperwork. Okay. And then well, I went to we'll, uh, we'll, we'll 17. We'll dive back into that for sure. We'll dive back into that for sure. Um, so the next question is, uh, what service and branch did you join? Uh, United States Navy. United States and Navy? I, yeah. Started out as an air traffic controller radar student, finished the course and then my orders got screwed up. I ended up at Navy SEAL training. <laughs> okay. Well, again, I would love to hear that story. Uh, the third question is, how long did you serve for? 20 years. Uh, half as an enlisted SEAL and half as an officer. Roger. Okay. Okay. And then the last question is, what rank did you get to? So I was a E7 or what's called a chief in the U.S. Navy when I uh, went to officer's candidate school and I retired as a lieutenant. Nice, nice. And I I will be interested to hear what that kind of like crossover uh, is like for you as a person. Uh, however, before we get there, let's rewind the clock. Where was you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in Sydney, Nebraska, which is out on the far left of the state of Nebraska, dead center in the United States. And I moved around, I guess, when I was three years old to Omaha, which is the largest city on the exact opposite side of the state. And... Uh, Grew there, grew up there until I was 11, and then my, fam my family moved to Japan for four years. My father was working for the U.S. government, and my parents got divorced during that, the end of that four-year period. So my mom, myself, and my siblings moved back to the house we had rented out in Omaha. And uh, then she kicked me out of the house, and I ended up going to live with my dad in Hawaii. Wow. And then he got, and then he got uh, uh a change of orders again. He wasn't in the military, he just worked for the Department of the Army. So he had a change of orders to Detroit, Michigan. So my senior year of high school, I ended up graduating out of Gross Point South in Michigan, which was a suburb of Detroit. Okay. Wow, that's quite a lot of moving around. Uh can, can you can you remember Japan much? Like what, what age was oh, you yeah. when you were there? Eleven through fourteen. 
Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. And you said four years you were there. So right. um, what what was that like, like living in Japan? It was interesting in that we, we had to stay on the military bases. So there were what they would call operating bases, or kind of like think of the business bases. And then there were housing bases. There were separate, like little islands that you you got to through the, the military bus system. The Army had their little cluster of operating bases and, and housing bases. The Air Force and the Navy had the same thing. And the uh, it was kind of like a, a, a completely self-contained environment. You had the schools. You had, obviously, the places for the, for the adults to go to work. You had an incredible sports system, every single kind of sport you can imagine, every level from eight years all the way up through senior and high school. So you could play every sport all day long, all year long, the whole time you were there because they were trying to keep the kids busy. Okay. And then you would also do intramural fights between Army and Navy and Navy and Air Force and Army, Navy, Air Force. And so it was a very interesting uh, way to spend four years as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sounds it. And did, did you get out to go and see the, the country much? Did you, did you travel much within Japan? Yeah, every year, I think there were three major field trips. So you figure that's 12, right? Is that right? Yeah, three times four. Yeah. Yeah, that's 12 right. <laughs> field trips where you'd actually go and stay for three or four days someplace. So you would go to like the temple uh, city of Nikko and see, you know, the the, the famous uh, monkeys that see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Ah, you see yeah. where it actually came from. It's carved in a temple. And you'd go to Mount Fuji. I used to climb Mount Fuji when I was 14. Uh, we wow. went to the Imperial uh Japanese Imperial Museum to see all the history of the samurai. And we, I mean, you went all over the place and you'd spend days and days and they had people that would, uh, like a tour guides for kids, you know, taking you around, showing you everything, you know, there was to, to know about Japan. So yeah, yeah, it was an incredible experience, you know, from that, from that end of the deal too. Wow. Okay. And during, during your time at school, uh, within, uh, the U S and also over in Japan, was you was you pretty good at anything in particular? Was you quite an academical kid or a sports kid or what kind of kid were you? I was really good at swimming. Okay, I, I learned how to swim when I was eight. I was in competitive swim on competitive swim teams all the way through to my junior year of high school, uh, winter and summer competition leagues. Um, obviously, that's kind of a you know a uh, what do you call it? A, a foreshadowing of my future <laughs> as a yeah. seal, but yeah. So I was, I was really good at that, and it also made me very comfortable. Eventually, when I was in Hawaii, surfing and, and being around big waves again, kind of a foreshadowing of what I was going to be exposed to uh, as a as a seal. The um, academically, I, I I think my dad, and my mom, really got me into reading at a really young age. So I was a voracious reader, mostly novels. But then my dad realized that I was kind of wasting, or he thought wasting my time doing nothing but reading novels. So he decided to have me read very, very serious books for my allowance. So okay, right around the time I was about 14, suddenly I'm reading the Hindu Upanishads and the Book of Mormon and the Bible and uh, Spinoza and all, you know, uh, Gantt, all kinds of you know, philosophers and theologians and and historical books, and, uh, and then I had to give kind of an oral feedback to my dad to make sure that I'd actually read the thing. And he'd read the books that were out of his library, and then I would get my allowance. And <laughs> however long it took for me to read the book, it was up to me. 
Right. And the allowance, the allowance was always the same. It was around 25 bucks, which was a lot of money. And I couldn't consume those books in one week. So usually I'd, I'd average around two weeks. So I became really good at, at reading, studying, you know, reading fairly quickly and absorbing, and then being able to kind of recant what I learned and the gist of what I'd, I'd read. Again, kind of an interesting skill set because that's very, very useful later on in life, whether you're in university or in, in the business world. So that, I think, became a strength of mine because of that. My love of reading got, you know, kind of converted into a love of learning through books because you can have access to those anywhere usually. So yeah, that became kind of a lifelong passion of mine. That's pretty cool. That's a good incentive. And, and the fact that you uh, lapped it up was was really good and like you say, you you uh, became a better person for it. Um, and then you mentioned that you went over to Hawaii. So what what age were you there when you when you headed over to Hawaii? I think I was fifteen. Yeah, you know, I, I was fifteen. It was uh, I think the fall of the year that I was fifteen, and so I lived in um, a little apartment complex not too far from my school. I was probably about fifteen blocks straight up the mountainside from Waikiki. And so, you know, you can come out and you can see Waikiki and Diamond Head off to the left and uh, another extinct volcano that was on the edge of our neighborhood called um, the Punch Bowl, which has got the National Cemetery of the Pacific inside. It's a dormant uh, volcano. And uh, yeah, I mean, learned how to surf. Uh, You know, most people don't know this, but Diamond Head has a crater music festival in it every year. So that, ah. that that actually was used by the U.S. Army as an ammunition storage site. So there's tunnels on the inside bored into the ring. Diamond Head is actually, you know, a big circle. On the side, yeah. it's always that one profile, right? So you can get in through a tunnel, and then there's this massive open space with, with tunnels built in all the way around the internal ridge. So perfect venue for, you know, putting up four or five different music um, band sites, and it was a big deal. So it's a very festive, very cool place to grow up. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And to spend a couple of years. Yeah. I, so I, I was very, very lucky to to go to Hawaii for the first time in March this year. Um, and I and I did. I I hiked up um, Diamond Head. Um, okay. And it's great. Like an ama- amazing views. And yeah, went into a few of those tunnels. Uh, probably not the ones you're mentioning, but they've got a part of the walkway, and you can the the lookouts over over the sea. Um, yeah, an amazing thing, but the fact that they do music there, <laughs> I bet that's really cool to experience. So yeah, and some pretty name, good name bands back in those days too. So uh, yeah, and, you know, and so there was always something to do. There's and yeah. a lot of physical things to do, like you said. There's hiking and walking and surfing and and swimming. And I played sports again the whole time I was there. I played football, track, and basketball, and um, so. Yeah, it was it was it was just kind of an extension of Hawaii in some ways. Excuse yeah, me, of, of my life in Japan, you know, it's Japan. Yeah, over to lots Hawaii. and lots of ex- extracurricular activity, a lot of access to sports and and you know good things to that's, do. That's really cool. And and you mentioned about doing all those different things and different sports. And what got me is getting up at six six thirty in the morning, going down to the beach for a, for a nice walk, and families are out. Like families are out walking their dog and doing stuff mm-hmm. at six thirty in the morning, uh, and I think that's just great. And then people down at—is it pipe? Oh, it's pipe something where they do all the surfing. Uh, pipeline. That's in the north. Yeah. 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 I, just, I drove up there just to see it because someone yeah. said to me that's a really good place the bon- to watch the bonsai pipeline because it's 
because the coral heads under the water are, are shaped like a fist at the end of an arm. So oh, really? when, the water, when the water pulls out to form the wave, it looks like these fists come up out of the, it, it's a, an <laughs> illusion. The water over the fist is, is being sucked away, but it feels like these posts are coming up. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of like bonsai. You're just going to go in for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really cool. And, and yeah, if any, anybody gets a chance to go to Hawaii, it's uh, it's absolutely worth it. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, so how long was you there for before you kind of headed back to... Just, just, shy, of two, just shy of two years. Right, right, right. Yeah. And what what age were you when you joined the military? So I joined, I, when, I, when I left Hawaii, and went back to Omaha for a very short period, for like half the summer. And a couple of my friends were going to join the Marine Corps and they talked me into joining the Marine Corps. We went into the recruiting station and I chickened out because I didn't think I could carry a backpack. I was only about 125 pounds. The other guys were two big, you know, strapping guys. So one of them did join the Marine Corps. The other one decided not to join the military at all. I went to the restroom and on the way I bumped into the Navy recruiter and he talked me into joining the Navy. Right. And so I signed that paperwork when I was 16 during that short little stint at my my mom's house in Omaha before I joined my dad in Detroit. Okay. Now, did you, was you enticed to join the military from, from your travels across Japan and Hawaii and things like that? Or, or was it something else that like was enticing you? My dad told me he wasn't going to pay for college and I didn't know enough about college. And back then schools weren't very good at explaining how to get into college. I was a 4.0 student and I'd actually taken a lot more courses than the average high school kid because every time I moved, the new school would say, well, we don't really, you know, you didn't get American history. Uh, we teach American history. You got world civilization. That's history, but it doesn't count for us. So I, I was like doubling up uh. core stuff every place I went all the way through my senior year. Uh, the career council my senior year said, according to my transcripts, I had like an entire fifth high school year worth of school just because of all, all the doubling up I had to do. So I thought I'd, I'd be good for college. I wanted to go to college. He said, not paying for it. Sorry. You can do what I did. You can join the Navy. So I thought, okay, if, if I don't have any choice, I'll join the Navy because the Navy paid for my dad's college. And I said, I'll join the Navy and one, I'll get out of the situation I'm in, which is I don't really know what I'm going to do next. And two, maybe I'll get the Navy to pay for my, my schooling. Cool. Okay. You mentioned signing on and then how long is it or what's that next step looking like before you actually are going through the doors of, of training? Cause you also mentioned right. that your papers got messed up. <laughs> yeah. So the, the way that early selection or early sign up program works is it, I think we up to a full year before you'd actually join physically. I think it was probably at about the 10 months out point. So you basically go down and you actually have to raise your hand and swear an oath and all that stuff. You know, you're, you're in and then you wait until you you turn 17 because you have to be 17 to go into the navy or any of our military's boot camps so i went into boot camp uh right after i turned 17 and our boot camps are nine weeks long for the navy they don't really teach much they just it's just discipline and marching a little bit about navy history it's not like say the army or the marine corps where they actually you're learning a little bit of basic soldiering skills so you, you we uh stopped issuing rifles at boot camp for the Navy about three years earlier. So okay. that was miss that was missing from my boot camp experience altogether. During boot camp, 
Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying, during boot camp, I, um, and this is something I found out almost eight years later, I took a test. And the test was, I thought, a swimming test. And we were having a competition, a big sports event that was scored between all the different boot camp companies. And the guy that was the um, Navy enlisted person in charge of our company wanted to know who could who could climb ropes fast, who could run fast, who could do things. And there's like six or seven of us that all raised our hands and said, we can swim. So since there were so many of us and you had relays and individual stuff, he says, well, I'm going to take you to the pool. I'm going to find out if you can swim or not. So we went to the pool and the pool was just filled with people swimming. It was packed. There's like 70 people there. Wow. And he said, just wait here for a second. He went over and he talked to someone and he came back and he said, you see that guy over there? You do whatever he says. You're going to get in the pool, but you're not going to be allowed to leave until he says you can leave. All right. So I jumped in the pool and the guy said to, I swam as far as the guy told me to swim. And then he told me to go over here and do pull-ups and go over here and do push-ups. And then he took me into uh, the locker room. And by that time, the 75 people were down to about 15. And he told us to uh, put our pants and our boots back on, our T-shirts, and then meet him outside. So we go out, and it's already dark now. And he told us we had to run around this huge marching drill area um, one and a half times. And we had to run as fast as we could, or there'd be hell to pay. And again, we're all just obedient, right? Okay, and so we ran it. What I didn't realize at the time is I was actually taking the SEAL entry test. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I got on that swim relay team because he did see that I could swim. And I left there and I went to uh, air traffic control radar school for about 16 weeks. I graduated number one in my class and I got promoted and I also got pickup orders. So they lay out all the the ships that are available and you get to pick which one you want to go to. So I picked the uh, USS Albany, which was uh, home ported in Italy because I wanted to see the Mediterranean, the history of it and everything. And I happily um, went to pick up my orders and my tickets and the guy read out my orders and he said, you know, report no later than 0730 tomorrow morning to underwater demolition seal training, Coronado, California. And then he yelled at me because I was still standing there and there were 15 people behind me trying to get their orders and tickets and uh yeah and you're a bit like what what the hell i meant to be going to italy right (laughs) right and and i at the time i had a girlfriend back in detroit and i was going to take two weeks of leave in detroit before i went to italy and i didn't know what udt seal training stood for you know back then it was a very very secret organization there wasn't you know wasn't any books or movies or anything about it so you know why am I going to California? I never heard Coronado out of California. I didn't realize it was in San Diego, but I had never heard. So everything he said, I'm like, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get so, to so the air, Sorry, before you go, before you talk yeah. about that, um, your your Navy training, you said you mentioned it was nine weeks long, right? Um, the boot camp, yeah. Of boot camp. How did you find that? Now, you, 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 yeah, you went and did this extra training, but I'm guessing that wasn't like week one. You surely did that a little bit later. Which one? The, um, the, 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 the seal like. Entry. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the progression would be nine weeks of boot camp, 16 weeks of air traffic control and radar school. Yeah. Then, then I went to seal training, which is six months long. Okay. So, but you, you that running around that going to the, the 75 of you in the pool, when, when was that? That wasn't at the beginning. That was, was in boot, that was in boot camp in the very beginning. That, the beginning of boot camp. Right. Wow. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. So did, did so you? I um, have no memory of it. You know, I had no idea. Yeah. So you, it, to you, it's just part of boot camp. Um, right. I just did what yeah. I was told, and I yeah, guess yeah, yeah. because at the end of the run, they they told us to put our names and our social security numbers and stuff down on clipboards, and two of us were asked to do that. So two out of the however many 13, 14 that did the run, and then they said go back to your company. Okay. And quite frankly, until almost eight and a half years later, when I went back and I was a a senior enlisted and I was actually in charge of the first phase of SEAL training, which has Hell Week and the entries. I got, I got to see my record. And then I saw that, I saw that test form. I saw what my times were. I actually (laughs) passed, I passed the run by two seconds. Okay. That's a a pretty skinny margin to define your fate. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. How did you find the rest of boot camp though? Because you, uh, you know, the first time you're being trained to be a, a military person in the Navy. Yeah. How did you it find was, it? It was, it was fine. The, the, uh, the biggest discrepancy between my life to, up to that point, because you know, I'd been to a lot of places. So I was, I wasn't uh, uncomfortable with strangers for sure. You know, I was very easy. Uh, it was very easy for me to make acquaintances and I was very comfortable communicating and talking to people and asking lots of questions, but it was the age discrepancy. So I was 17. And at that time, a really big part of, boot camp population was in their late 20s early 30s right so yeah so it was i don't know why i don't know if it had something to do with in the the economy in the the mid 70s or whatever but there were lots and lots of older people and there were a lot of people from different parts of the country i'd never been to and back then the the culture hadn't been homogenized either nationally or like it is now globally so there were distinct accents i mean if you were from Louisiana, you had a distinct accent from somebody who was from Mississippi, even though it was real, real close. Flor- Floridians had a different accent. Everybody had a different accent, and they had different slang and different. You know, they they call called everything different things. You know, the um, guys from Boston called soft drinks tonic. You know, and out west we called it Coke, and someplace else they, <laughs> they you know they call it uh you know something else. So. It was really weird. That was the hardest, and that's hardest, but the strangest part was trying to figure out how to assimilate with maybe, you know, 15 different kinds of cultural backgrounds. And they were all having the same trouble, you know. So you end up kind of clicking together with people that are kind of like you at first. Okay, yeah. But then the military experience is all about you got to do things together. You got to go through the firefighting school and boot camp. You know, there's a lot of things you're doing that you realize it doesn't matter what your differences are. You're, you're yeah. all in this together kind of thing. And you mentioned that you were doing a lot of sport when you were uh, growing up. Yeah. And therefore, you're, you're probably, that helped you in, in boot camp. But how did you find things like the, the shooting aspect or that, that kind of drill or that so there wasn't, area? We didn't have any shooting. No uh, shooting? No, no, remember, the rifles were taken out three years before I got there. Oh, okay. The I na- thought that was just for like yeah, the, so the, the Navy, general no, purpose. The Navy, we had the rifle racks in the back of the uh, barracks room still, but three years earlier they'd removed it. The wow. Navy decided that sailors didn't need to know how to shoot. Uh, they changed their they changed their opinion after the USS Cole got got hit in two thousand two thousand. So now now sailors know how to shoot. Um, okay, but the uh, you know the they pick they pick recruits to be leaders and. Same thing as when I went through officers' cannon school. They picked the students to be leaders. So you're supposed to kind of lead and learn about leadership by leading this little, you know, odd little structure that they have in boot camp. So there's a, a company commander who's a recruit, and there's a, uh, an assistant company commander. So I, I was picked to be the assistant company commander, 
And then there's a company, uh, there's squads, and each squad has a leader and all that. And that was really, really weird because I'd never been in charge of anything. Suddenly I've got, you know, 90 guys that I'm telling them, tell them to show up here, show up there, make sure you have this equipment. Um, that was probably, the, the, of all the things I remember about boot camp, that was probably the, the, the biggest challenge and something I'd never anticipated. Mm. But my first stint at trying to become a leader and to be judged as a leader and to be, and to have people engage with me and, and, you know, basically yeah. tell me to, to pound sand because they're not going to tell, they're not going to listen to a 17 year old punk regardless <laughs> of what his, his, his title is. Yeah. But you got through that. Uh, then you headed off and there was a 16 week course for what in particular? Well, it's called operation specialist, but it covers air traffic control, meaning bringing in helicopters into the back of Navy ships and radar operations, which is, Everything to do with with surface radar, that's ships, and everything to do with air radar, which is all the planes, aircraft. You learn both aspects of it. You learn how to work in a combat information center where all that information is being exchanged. Um, back then, it was uh, we were transitioning from an analog approach, which same same kind of radar repeaters my dad used, with little hand cranks and stuff, and you're moving a little little analog dials to 365, you know, meters and you know, or miles or whatever the measurement happened to be, uh, X, X number of degrees. And these two little lines would come across things you're looking at. And it, it was very, very um, intense. And, and then with us, what they did is they got us through the original 12-week course and they added another four weeks because the Navy was converting to computers, all computers to do what we just got trained to do you know, like the guys did in the Korean war and they had trackballs. you know, first thing was way, way, way before, you know, games where you had right. a ball. And if you, and you, you had your hand on it, you're moving the ball around. It's moving the little cursor all over the screen. And then you, when you put it on what you want it, you hit it like that with your hand and this little ring pops up and it locks it in. All this data shows up. Yeah. Back then. So it was, it was like <laughs> Star Wars stuff for me. Yeah. Yeah. Did did you enjoy it though? I mean, that's four months, right? So it's quite it's quite a long long time to be learning things. So we went. We had the night school session. They were they were hurting for this particular skill set in the Navy. So we started at I think it was eight o'clock in the evening and finished sometime around two o'clock in the morning, and did that for the whole sixteen weeks. That took a, that took a while to get used to. It's the first time I ever drank coffee in my life, uh-huh. and I haven't <laughs> stopped. I haven't stopped yet. Um, the uh, the the challenge of it, looking back, kind of like like sealed, like like Helwick or something. Looking back on it, it seems really cool and everything. While you're going through it, you just wish it would stop, because we started with about 28 students, and I think we ended up with about half that number, uh, and and most of them wow. couldn't handle, like the air traffic. Just think of what an air traffic controller does, and they've got to keep all these different yeah. elements in their mind, sorted and ordered, and give directions and not screw it up not even a yeah. little bit not even once because yeah. if you don't if the little the little dots on the screen start to come together and merging you got a problem so yeah you, you, there's no there's no room for failure and uh you're doing it in, in, in a combat information center and all the things you're doing are being displayed openly so the instructors can see you, you can't cheat you can't do a workaround you can't catch up yeah so it's pretty intense do you, do you happen to know if that um is nowadays 
what the role is called, or have they yep. or have they amalgamated it with someone else? No, it's still the same. They they moved the yeah. school from uh, Illinois to not too far from where I live right now uh, to, to Virginia, but uh, the same thing. Operation specialist. I'm sure the technology has improved, but it's the same mm. type of operations. Yeah, nice, nice. And then you mentioned about going to get your your papers because you thought you're off to Italy, but you went somewhere yeah. else. So tell us about that that aspect. Yeah. So I, you know, after the shock of of getting the information from this guy, and I and I tried to ask a question. He just told me to get the hell out of there, and I was going to miss my plane because there was a snowstorm hitting, and the shuttle to the to uh, the airport in Chicago was going to be uh, ending soon. So I did what I was told. I get to the airport. Um, I didn't have enough quarters to to call my dad, so I borrowed some quarters from some people, which was nice because I was in uniform, so they gave me quarters. And, and sorry, dad, ju- just just to yeah. jump in there for anybody that that's too young, you had to pay for calls back then. You didn't have yeah, you didn't have cell phones or mobiles. <laughs> yeah, and the longer the distance of the call, the more expensive it was. You could call yeah. and ask somebody to to accept the charges, but you weren't the one talking. Oh, yeah. the, the operator would call your your family and say, uh, we have a call. Uh, would, would you accept the charges? And nine times out of 10, they go, oh, no way. Click. <laughs> so they weren't hearing your voice and they didn't necessarily say much about you. So it, it was it was lucky if you ever got anybody to actually accept charges, unless you somehow figured it out ahead of time in a letter or something. I'm going to call yeah. you exactly this time. Anyway, so I got the quarters on the machine and I probably had about four minutes of time. My dad thankfully answered because that was the problem in those days. Phones were attached to buildings, not to your hip or in your pocket. And uh, I blurted out everything that happened and he paused and he said, I don't know what, what this is This is in the Navy that you're, that you're talking about, but I do know that orders are orders and you got to follow your orders. So when you go get, get on the plane, go out to California, and when you get there, find a chief petty officer walk up to him and explain what the situation is and they'll sort it all out. And he goes, because the chiefs run the Navy. And I go, all right. And that's what I did. I showed up out there and I was on a Friday night. So I had to wait until uh, Monday morning. And meanwhile, I found out what a, what a UDT was. It was underwater demolition team, uh, essentially a frogman. And I, and I learned about what a seal was all because the barracks, the holding barracks that I was sitting in for that weekend was filling up with guys that wanted to be SEALs that had been training to be SEALs and were happy to tell me everything about the SEALs. And so the okay. more I talked, the more I realized, yeah, yeah, this is a big mistake, you know, because remember I didn't join the Marine Corps because I didn't think I could carry a backpack. Yeah. Yeah. So I went in Monday morning and I did exactly what he said. I went to the, uh, to the uh, reception area at, at the school and said, I need to talk to a chief petty officer. And the, the student that was standing there said, well, why? Who are you? You know, are you checking in? I said, nope, I need to talk. I just kept saying it. And so a, a master chief, which is the highest rank you can get in the Navy, he comes in there and he said, so you're looking for a chief? And I said, uh, yes, master chief. He goes, so will master chief do? I said, absolutely, master chief. He goes, come on. Takes me back to this room, listens to my story. And when I'm done, he says, I believe you. We're not allowed to recruit operation specialists. They're they're considered a restricted job in the Navy. So there's no way we could have ever asked you to come here. There's no way you could have volunteered to come here after you were qualified to be an OS. But now that you're here, <laughs> and then he talked me into it. He talked you into it. 
And, and the nice thing was he was about five foot four, a chest full of medals. Um, I'm, I'm in contact with him to this day. We reconnected on Facebook about three years ago. And I told him the story. I wrote it out for him and, and told him, because he didn't, of course, he's not going to remember this. And I know he wasn't going to remember this because flashing forward eight years or so, when I show up and I'm the guy in charge of first phase, about once or twice a week, somebody would come down and say, hey, we have a guy up there saying there's a mistake of orders. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and most of the times it's just cold feet, you know, but, you know, I'm thinking, man, I can't believe this guy gave me the time of day. <laughs> all the time but he did and that's how i ended up in the seals do you remember what he said to you that actually so-called convinced you to stay and the parts i can remember he he asked me if i played sports and i said yes and he said what did you what did you play and i told him and he said so when you're in, in football did uh did the coaches yell i said well yeah why did they yell at you? Well, if we weren't running fast enough or doing the play the right way. And he goes, well, the, the instructors here are a lot, a lot like that. They're just trying to make you better. They're just trying to get everybody to work together. They, you know, they want you to win. Um, they might seem harsh, but you know, like the coaches in your football team, they just want, want to see everybody do better. And I said, okay. He goes, are you, are you comfortable around water? And I said, well, yeah. Do you know how to swim? And so I told him, yeah, I was a competitive AAU swimmer, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, really? And he goes, have you been near the ocean? Yeah. I'm surfing Hawaii. And he goes, really? Okay, so you'll have no problem here. And eventually, he made it sound like it was a country club sports sports association. <laughs> and then if anybody yelled at me, it's because they really wanted me to be an Olympian. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And again, remember, I'm, 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 just, I'm just turning 18. Like, I'm still kind of obeying, you know, what people tell me yeah. to do. And for a master chief to say, yeah, no, no swim, then it's a volunteer organization. You can volunteer out of the SEAL course anytime. You can volunteer out of any uh, SEAL training, intermediate training at any time. You can be in the teens for 10 years and say, I'm done. It's, it's, there's no coercion. You can quit any moment. And I said, okay. He goes, you know what? And if you do decide this isn't for you and you want to move along, you're an OS and they're going to put you on that ship anyway. I go, okay. (laughs) So you mentioned, uh, just, just, say the name again because i mean i don't know everything about the seals uh as far as i'm aware you go on buds is yeah is that, so, is that what so, it is now and it, it used to be called different or no it's always been that it's uh it stands for basic underwater demolition and then there's a slash and then ask for seal training right okay and yeah, that's, that's what, what you were there to do is that right and that's what i ended up yeah entering there for a six-month Okay. Uh, six months. But camp. you called it, you called it something different though, didn't you? Um, well, they they sent underwater demolition slash seal training on my orders, but the school's right. called basic underwater demolition seal training. Roger. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Or, or buds or buds for short. Buds for short. So six months there. What can you share? What can you remember? Um, just in case others are thinking of going down the seal route themselves. We'll be right back. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years 
and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Yeah, so um, I remember more because I've came back as an instructor, I think. When you're going through it, you're not really paying attention to the to the history of it. You're not really you're not really contemplating that you're going to think about this later on down the road and you have to reflect back on it. You're just, you're getting up, surviving, you know, one evolution at a time, one event at a time, one test at a time, and then you're trying to make it to sleep and then you're trying to wake up and do it all over again. So you string together a whole lot of days like that. And I guess the, uh, the first thing I realized was we started out with 126 guys on day one. And by the time Hell Week started, which was about three or four weeks, three weeks later, I think in my time, four, four weeks later, they changed it off and on. So I had four weeks of what they called um, preparatory training or pre-training, and then Hell Week started, and that was a whole week, the fifth week in, in my time. So in that four weeks, we lost half the class. So we were down to 60 people. And... That was an interesting experience because I'd never been exposed to any anything like that. The 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 attrition, the human attrition. It it, was, it must have been what it was like for people like hitting the beaches in World War II with all their buddies that they trained with. You know, on day three, you're looking around and half of them are gone. You have no idea what happened to them. You don't know where they. You know, you have no clue. And that's what it was like. Every single day, my room and emptied out. There was four people to a room. Every day it emptied out. Every week they'd re- reorder the rooms and everything. You get some new room buddies, and and then another week would go by and it empty out. And you start getting this weird feeling like, why am I? Why am I still here? Why am I surviving? Where are these people going? Because they don't let you talk to them. If they right. quit or they're injured, they were actually taken to uh, another Navy base to get away from the environment, and so they can kind of rebuild their self-esteem and get ready for whatever the Navy was going to have them do uh, in the future. So that was that was really a weird thing for a guy my age to see that. The other thing I realized is that when things go, things get difficult, things go sideways in life, there are people that suck it up and smile, and there are people that get buried by by the uh, the event and get depressed and turn to despair. And you can physically see the difference. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their posture. Um, Victor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, about his experience in Nazi in a Nazi prison camp, writes about exactly the same thing I saw at Buds. And it, people just gave up on themselves. And pretty soon they turned into the ten, turn inward. They wouldn't talk to anybody. And you knew after the third week, you knew if that that guy doing that is not going to stick around. He's going to be gone. As an instructor, mm-hmm. later on, you definitely saw that. You could actually see. If you see a twinkle in somebody's eyes when they're shivering, <laughs> you know, that, that dude's sticking around, right? Okay. Yeah but, yeah. If, but if you saw somebody looking at you very dully and he's just going into a class about navigation, then he's already made a decision to leave. So it became okay. a mental game. I don't think I appreciated it until I was an instructor, but the, the struggle was all between your ears. It was all not about how, how tough you were physically or how good you were physically or how athletic you were physically. Or even how you could endure, you know, uh, environmental challenges. It was, what did you do with all that, psychologically, intellectually? 
how did you how did you decide to deal with it? And if you decided to deal with it by putting one foot in front of the other and hanging around those guys that were smiling, you had a chance. And okay. and that's what I that's what I learned more than anything else from that experience. All right. Now you mentioned Hell Week. Is this something that's open to the public? Are we allowed to know what is in Hell Week? Because I'm guessing yeah. that's one of the testing weeks. That's my guess that gets rid of people yeah. that aren't going to cut, aren't going to cut it. Yeah. Also known affectionately as Boats and Logs Week. You basically like the SAS. They make you, you know carry massive backpacks across the moors and do, you know everybody every selection process. Army Rangers, Green Berets. Australian and British SAS, everybody, SBS, they all have something, right? So what the SEALs decided, and this is back in World War II, was one of the things that they hated to do was carrying small boats all over the place because they're they're cumbersome and they're difficult to maneuver. And so from the very beginning, they decided to take these little dinghies and make them a part of the, the stress factor. So in Hell Week, you've already been trained how to how to inflate these things, deflate these things, paddle them through the surf, flip them over to drain them of water, flip them back over, get back in. You've been trained on how to land on rocks and pull them up off the rocks safely. And all that and your physical training and your swimming and, and your ability to run long distances all comes to play in five days of pretty much 95% being awake. So you're sleep deprived for the whole period. You get to eat all you want, by the way. If, if you didn't do that, then they would just flop over on, on the third day. But you're in a yeah. constant state of motion. So you are you are either walking, running, swimming, carrying a boat on your head, or carrying a log someplace from point A to point B nonstop for five days. It's not about, and you're doing it at night, you're doing it whatever the weather conditions are, and you're, you're immersed in the ocean a lot so you're you're losing body heat you're losing you're burning calories like crazy and the whole the whole point of the exercise is to let that process in that environment get you to a point where you make that final decision in your head that's it if you win you win the fight with the voices in your head and usually it's by tuesday night or wednesday morning of hell week you're never going to quit again that's because you will have come to a point where you realize I'm not capable of quitting and I can pretty much handle anything. And, and at that point, they, we, we finish out the last two days of hell week, but it's very, very choreographed and, and people are watching everything because your, your, your ability to, to make good decisions is, is rapidly declining because of your fatigue and your mental state. And, and so you're still shuffling and staying in, staying in in sync with the events and all that but the uh you could actually do physical damage if you just kept pushing them the last two days just to push them because we all know because we've all been there they pretty much have decided i don't think in the time i was there as an instructor i don't think i ever saw anybody quit after the sun came up on wednesday morning yeah okay and you mentioned that you were there for six months but this hell week is only after the first month so what what's yeah. the final months looking like so so it's changed over time and when i went through you had beach reconnaissance and 
offshore reconnaissance and preparation for landing. So basically swimming around off the beach, looking for obstacles to landing craft and things. The old World War II mission of the, the original frogmen. That's what you trained to after Hell Week. And then you went into the next phase, which when I went through was the diving phase. So you go through basic air scuba. There's a couple of really tough tests in there that there, there is attrition. It's not because people quit. It's because people freak out under the stress of doing things underwater. And every class loses two or three at the most in, the, in that in those series of tests. It's, it's called pool competency, but it's, um, it's because we know down the road you're going to be you know, in a dark, you know, peat-filled harbor someplace in Europe trying to find the bottom of a ship and you're going to have guys next to you and guns hanging off you and everything and you can get entangled and, and you can panic. At you know, any moment you can panic. And most of the time you will get confused and entangled and you got to stop and think through the entire thing and slowly undo the knot, be patient and be, you know, be poised. So... What, we're, what they do in that pool, in that nice clean pool in the California sun is nothing compared to what is going to happen. So um, that's what you do in the early part. Once you get your uh, scuba quals, then they start shifting into more advanced underwater breathing apparatuses, uh, a, a pure oxygen uh, apparatus, and then the, there's a mixed gas um, apparatus. Those are more introductory Um Sessions of training, they teach you how to um, attack ships, at least on paper. You know, how you use underwater navigation as swim pairs to go and find a ship and then place a charge on that ship and then get away from that ship through underwater navigation. And, uh, and then you're done with that phase. Meanwhile, all the running and swimming in the obstacle courses, and there's, that's all happening. The physical conditioning is still going on through that whole second phase. You're just not being punished like a hell week type thing. Okay. And, um, and then you go into the last phase, which for me was land warfare, weapons, and demolitions. And was there was there a great feeling of relief or you've accomplished this or, or what at the end for yourself once you got through and, and achieved and became a SEAL? My biggest relief was when the last... Four, yeah, four, four or five weeks of the last nine weeks, we go to an island off the coast of uh, San Diego, San Clemente, and we train with a lot more heavy fire, uh, firepower weapons and demolitions and grenades and all that. And they don't have any long timed runs out there. I was the worst runner in my class. Right. I was the fastest sprinter and I was the worst long distance runner. And all we did was long distance running. So. If we ever had occasion to go short distances, we had 90 pounds of gear on us. So nobody was moving fast, you know? So uh, I failed a timed run at the end of first phase, and I had one week to make it up or get kicked out. I, I made, I passed, and then every phase, the times ratcheted down. So I passed that makeup run in first phase by about nine seconds but I had to carve 15 seconds off to make the very first time to run in the next phase. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But somehow I passed that run and, and there were two 14 mile runs. This is in soft sand with wearing boots. So, uh, I survived both of those. And, uh, I just, I, until the day where I didn't have to do a time to run was behind me. I figured somehow I could still end up being kicked out of this place. 
But once we go to the island, there was no timed runs. There was lots of running with rifles and things like that, but there was nothing timed. So I knew once I got on that plane and those wheels came off the tarmac, there was a 99.9% .9 chance I was going to be a SEAL. So that's really nice. when, I, when I felt it. Not even after Hell Week. I, mean, I, I figured that was just one <laughs> notch in the belt. That wasn't it. That wasn't yeah. enough yeah, yeah. yet. So once you complete uh, the, bed, the buds, uh, do you know where you're going? Or do you all go to a central location and then you go from there? What what can you share from uh, from that area? From that area? Sure. So in those days, you went to Army Jump School at Fort Benning, same jump school that the Army went through. Right. Learned, learned how to jump out of a plane. You got five jumps to get qualified, and you did uh, a couple of day jumps, and then a day jump with full equipment, and then a night jump, and then a night jump with full equipment. And I think it was, I want to say it was three weeks long. Yeah, it was three weeks long. But when you left Buds, when you graduated, they had handed you your orders. So you knew where you were going. And in those days, they had, they only, did you say? Yeah. So in those yeah, days, okay. they only had two SEAL teams. Uh, they had SEAL Team 1 in California and SEAL Team 2 in Virginia Beach. And then they had a couple of underwater demolition teams that were doing the old World War II mission as their primary focus. SEAL teams one and two were jungle fighting. They, they were Vietnam era, you know, focused kind of jungle fighters. A couple of classes, I think a couple of classes before me was the first time they started sending guys straight from BUDS right to a SEAL team. It used to be you had to go to a UDT team, do two years and then request to go to the SEAL team and all this other stuff. But they were running out of uh, fresh bodies in, in both the SEAL teams. And the guys had been pretty shot up in... 10 years of wartime. So they needed uh, to get some fresh blood in there. So I went to jump school, three weeks of, of learning how to jump out of an airplane. Then I reported to How was that? That wasn't bad. First time I ever saw uh, an adult cry from fear. That was interesting. That's a, that's a chain reaction. You get a whole bunch of people lined up to a side exit and a cargo plane. And even if it's daytime outside, you can't see anything because there's so many people. I'm, you know, I'm five, nine. If everybody lined up in front of you waiting to go out with their helmets on and everything. And then you start hearing people crying. I'm like, wow, there's some people really worried about this. <laughs> and I, you know, I was worried until I heard somebody start crying. It's kind of like the, the, anybody that's ever been in an aircraft in the military knows the, the effect of one guy puking. <laughs> it's like yeah. this, it just starts a chain reaction, you know? Um, and that's how it was. Everybody starts freaking out, you know, and, and I'm like, why is everybody scared? These were grown men. They're all older, older than me, right? And then all of a sudden you're moving and then you start to see a little bit of light and then you turn it's like, if you're stuck down the plane, it's over and you're under, you're under the canopy and you're like, oh, okay. This is so bad. <laughs> so yeah, problem with that. Um, I mean, I went on to have, God, at least 250 uh, static line jumps, you know, where the, the, you have a line pulling the parachute for you and about 750 skydives. So I, wow. I really liked jumping. I enjoyed it. But yeah, so you you had got orders. You went to the, your first command. Probably a third of our class went to SEAL Team 1 or SEAL Team 2, and the others went to uh, UDT teams. In 1983, they converted all of them to SEAL teams. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So sorry, say again where you went to? SEAL Team 2, SEAL team, Virginia Beach. SEAL Team 2, yeah. Virginia Beach. Okay. Um, and how was it there? Because I'm guessing it's different. Right, it's different from a, a a boot camp. It's different from from buds. It's it's different because it's an actual unit. 
Uh, how was yeah. it when you got there? Yeah. So, you know, you never, you didn't have that much um, positional authority or self-esteem, even after getting through through buds, because everybody there, all the instructors told you, you're nothing. You know, you're not a SEAL yet, and all that. But when you showed up at a SEAL team, you were, you know, a fucking new guy in FNG. I mean, that was that was the <laughs> yeah. label. You were. One guy told me you were fully qualified and only qualified to empty the trash can or the shit cans, what they call it. And that's what we're going to have you do for a while. I mean, that was it. They were all, I mean, we had maybe 16 or 17 guys that weren't Vietnam vets. Uh, we had, right. we had Navy cross. I mean, everybody was all heavily decorated warriors, all shot up body parts, chunks of body parts missing. Very humbling. Cause I, I knew enough about history to understand what that all meant, but uh, they were a different generation and they were older than me by, in most cases, um, about 10 years and some cases even older than that. So there was a generational disconnect and uh, they were all heavy drinkers and heavy smokers. And uh, it was a whole different kind of world, a whole different kind of culture for somebody stepping in there. Not just for me, but for any of us new guys that were walking in there. Okay. So we wanted to assimilate and assimilation isn't a social thing in that kind of a unit. So you go through a, um, a four-month intermediary course. They still have it. It's just right after Bud's and it's in Coronado, but it's been there ever since uh, I went through. Different names, et cetera, but the same thing. They basically train you in the intermediate skills of warfare because when you came out of Bud's, you really didn't know that much. And the way that it was run at the time for SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2 is you basically were running through the Vietnam uh, pre-deployment training. Even though Vietnam okay. was over, you, you were considered the Navy's jungle fighting unit, special ops jungle fighting unit. So you had to keep those skills up. So we were trained by all these, you know, eight, nine tour combat veteran SEAL superstars in how to fight the VC or how to fight uh, communist guerrillas and how to do ambushes and how to sneak around. And it was all very um, non-kinetic. It was, you're supposed to move like a ninja, do the job and get out without anybody knowing you were there. But like a ninja, if somebody suddenly woke up and saw you, you had about 19 different ways to kill the person. <laughs> and, yeah. you, and, and you were trained to kill the person violently, quickly, and end it so there wasn't a real fight. It was, it was more yeah. like, it was like murder. You just, you did it and you, and you, and you slid back out. And that was the philosophy. It was, it was definitely not today's, you know, kick the door down, blow things up, slide down ropes on top of buildings and all that. It was very, very cerebral and very philosophically different because uh, the best thing for a SEAL in Vietnam was to say that they were on missions and they never got caught. Mm -hmm. The worst things for most of the SEALs in Vietnam, a lot of the guys that trained us, they point to their rewards and say, these are, this is, this, this is an indication of a fuck up. If I've got a valor award and I'm a SEAL, it means I fucked up. My, my team fucked up. We got caught. Right. We stumbled into something we shouldn't have stumbled into. You know, we didn't break contact fast enough. So if you see guys walking around with these on there, they know the stories and the stories aren't good stories. 99% of the stories are we screwed things up. So, you know, again, kind of a, a flip a reversal of the more valorous approach, say by light infantry and elite infantry, which is, you know, you're sent in there to, you know, smack heads and, and cause chaos and 
defeat the enemy and all that. And getting shot and getting shot at is a part of the deal. Mm. They, did, they didn't see it that way. Okay. Okay. Now, just, just for a timeline uh, kind of, yeah, knowing where you are, what age are you at the point of you going to SEAL Team 2? And roughly what year is that that you get there? Uh, early 77, like January 77. And I'm 18 and a half. Okay. So still very young. <laughs> still yeah, very young. I, I think I, I broke 130 pounds soaking wet right about the time I showed up at SEAL Team 2. And then how long was you there um, at SEAL Team 2? Because you mentioned about going back as a training yeah. instructor, but was you at SEAL Team 2 for that whole time before you went back? Or Yeah, I was, I was there for eight years and okay, yeah. made, uh, I think, five deployments overseas. They're usually six-month deployments working with um, our allied counterparts. So, you know, special operators and I, mean, I spent a lot of time in pool. You know, I spent a lot, Which a is, lot of time in in England in general, uh, working with the Danish, the Danish uh, commandos, the Norwegian commandos, the German commandos, the French commander Hubert, the Italians, the Spanish, you know, you name it. We, were, we worked with everybody and you'd go and you'd work for a month usually in each country. And SEAL Team 2's orientation at that time was Northern kind of the NATO environment. Um, so yeah, at the end of that eight year period, um, I made chief and I showed up for a two year tour as an instructor back in California at the schoolhouse to be the senior enlisted guide in charge of that first phase of BUDS training. Interesting. Interesting. Now, during that eight year before you head off back to BUDS, uh, are you able to share anything in particular that stood out like a, a, a mission, not in real detail, but just an overview of something that you've done that stood out? There was a lot of Cold War type of activity that was going on that um, that I can't really talk about, but it was think about that philosophy I was talking about before. SEALs were being, they were always on standby for a hot war, but they were being used all over the place for strategic reconnaissance, you know, strategic surveillance. Um, I, I mean, everybody was. Every, all of our counterparts, counterparts in NATO were doing the same thing. We were being trained in skills that had nothing to do with guns so that we could, you know, we were going to lock picking schools and all kinds of crazy stuff so that we could go out and do what we had to do in a, a non-hot firing war. And, and there, you know, there were a couple of times we got stood up for, for kind of a shoot them up. Uh, but none of them ever came to fruition. Um, the very last one was Grenada. It was just before I left. Uh, and we were all ready to go down there and everything, but the Grenadians and the Cubans gave up faster than we could get down there. So the, the big wave of seals didn't get engaged. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Okay. And how, how does, uh, how does promotion work in, in, in the SEAL team? Is it after a period of time or do you have to go off and do certain courses or have completed a certain amount of things before you get looked at? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty much the same as, as it was when I first joined, you are put into a, what they call a rate in the Navy. Uh, it's a military oper operational occupational specialty in the army and MOS and it's what you were. So I was a radar operator, right? I was a OS operations specialist. So for me to promote, I had a 
two things. One, I had to do a minimum time service, and then I had to take a test. And the test was my peer group. So everybody taking that ranked test in the entire United States Navy was competing. And every year, the number of openings for that rank fluctuated. So if there's a year where they only had a need for two, the top two people's testing out would get it. And everybody else would just, you know, have to wait. And the SEALs didn't operate and work in the rates that the Navy had. I never, I never operated, you know, radar trying to land a helicopter with when I was a SEAL team too. And yeah. a lot of the stuff that was related to my specialty was all classified. And we weren't allowed to hold that particular stuff. I'd have to go to a ship, go into a safe or a big, you know, contained room and study in there if I wanted to prepare for the test which is pretty difficult since I'm on the road running around learning how to do other things. Yeah. There were, uh, there were a couple of jobs sales had like being medic that, that were aligned. There were some jobs that were close enough like mechanical, uh, mechanically related, um, or, um, communications related jobs because we had, we were using all kinds of radios and stuff. So we were communicating all the time. But just because you were a communicator of SEAL teams doesn't mean it aligned with what your your official Navy job was. Your official Navy job might have been cook, and but now you're you're an advanced communication specialist in a SEAL platoon. So, so we what we all did to cope with that is we all tried to figure out what's the simplest possible test we can pass that the Navy has, where we don't have to be on a ship actually practicing it, because it was unfair that we had to compete because it doesn't make any sense. So. Gunner's mate, which had a lot to do with just guns, and the uh, the second one was uh, bosun's mate. So basically, was what, sorry, bosun's mate. So basically, how do you paint a ship? How do you you know prep, prime, and paint a ship? Huh. How do you uh, how do you coil ropes and and lines, and how do you handle anchors and that kind of stuff? So it's it's very learnable. And, uh, and once you've learned it, it's not like you need to learn, they're going to change the anchor system every year, like they do with the, <laughs> the technology part. So I was lucky enough. I took the, I took the, uh, the first rank test at SEAL team two as an OS. I actually took about 15 minutes. I had four hours to take the test. I just I hadn't trained, prepared for it. I went in there and kind of went ABBCC, ABBCC until I was done. I walked out and about Three months later, somebody says, hey, congratulations, Strong. I go, what? He goes, your name's up on the list. You made second-class petty officer. And I said, no way. No way. <laughs> I went down there. Well, that was the year the Navy had a huge gap in that particular rank in OS. And so all you had to do was shut up and fog a mirror and you're in. <laughs> I'm like, that's great. But the, then I started to approach the, the next test a couple of years later. And I thought, there's just no way in hell I'm going to be able to to do this. So I officially did all the paperwork to change from an OS to a bosun's mate. And I studied the bosun's mate test. I went in there and I spent all of the four hours and, um, and I passed and I got promoted. And then a couple of years later, I'd do the same thing when I made chief and, um, and I passed that test. So nowadays, I guess back in about 2005 ish, the seal community, did away with that and created a um, special operations rank structure. So okay. you, you, you test for, for the different ranks as a seal. 
which is, you know, which is a lot, you know, much, much more fair, I think. That's because yeah, for a lot of reasons. Because you, you got extra points in the test system. So if you were a SEAL, you're getting awards all the time. And those awards counted. So you're up against these guys in the fleet that, you know, might go 10 years before they get some kind of, you know, personal award. And you're walking around with nine of them. So, yeah, that was unfair. I mean, it was the only thing that was, there was a counterbalance on our side. But still, that was unfair that we were beating guys that didn't have the same opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in, in your eight years, did you get any awards in those first eight years? Did you get oh, any awards yeah. for your, your, your missions yeah. and jobs away? Yeah, I did. You'd like to share any of those or not? Well, they weren't, they weren't, <laughs> they weren't like the Medal of Honor or anything. It was just uh, Navy commendations and Navy achievement medals. And, and you get medals and awards when you are involved in big exercises or you go on major deployments and things like that. So I think I probably had like three. In, in the Navy, it's... Uh, three awards per row. I think I had like nine total, nine or 10 maybe. In the is. Yeah, when I left there. Wow. Um, again, remember the opportunity, your, your high visibility, you know, and um, much, much more so when I was an officer just because the, the tempo of, of, of real world missions really kicked up. But, you know, I, I briefed the chairman, joint chiefs of staff, the secretary of defense. I mean, it, when, you, when you get that kind of level of play, and you go and you do something that's successful, they just throw a bunch of crap at that whole group. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so so very different to to the British military. Um, you know, we 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 I mean, I, I was in for 16 years and I got uh five medals, but only what two of them were, were operational related. So um it's it's so very different than the US military um against the the British. Now, talking of British, you did mention about being down here in Poole, uh, that's the south coast of the UK. Um, that's the home of our SBS. So what's it like working with your British counterparts? Don't really care about the other European countries. What about the British counterparts? It was great. <laughs> it was great. And every weekend we'd all go to Bournemouth, you know, and that was great. Too. Oh, yes. Yeah. And all the girls from Manchester would come down to Bournemouth and it was a lot of fun. The other thing was a lot of fun. Um, well, the SBS guys are really good. The um, And they trained with the same counterparts we did. I mean... You know, they've just come back from say doing a ski, a one-month ski thing uh, with the Norwegians. You know, and we were going up there next, and we, you know, they were working with the Dutch, and we had just worked with the Dutch. You know, so we were. It was a lot of cross-pollination. We obviously have a lot in common, in in, in a lot of ways culturally. Uh, the the SBS has a tradition going back to I think it's 1970 of sending one officer and one color sergeant to SEAL Team 2 as an exchange program for two years. And we, in turn, would send one officer and one enlisted to Cool. Okay. And that continued on. I, I, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but the whole time I was at SEAL Team 2 for the eight years, there was a constant rotation. And then eventually, you know, like when I became a young officer, um, I was running into guys that I knew from those exchanges one of the times in Gibraltar as an officer, the guy in charge of all the SPS guys was an enlisted guy when we were both enlisted guys and we both realized we were both in charge of this exercise. We're like, they, they put the loonies in charge of the asylum here. <laughs> um, and then I got, that's how I, I got to do the old, uh, the whole Guinness, the whole Guinness drinking march down in Gibraltar to the gate to see if I could get my name up on the plaque there, but I didn't make it. Do you know about that? Uh, oh, you can, can no, you, I've been to Gibraltar. Yeah. But, um, 
It, it's kind of like, share with it's that. like a pub crawl. There's a, you start, there's like the, the three main rows that, that were long enough. Um, this is on the, um, the Western face. And there's the Enlisted Club and the Ostrich Club at the end, closer to the base going into Spain. And in there, there's plaques up on the walls. And this is telling. In the Ostrich Club, there's one plaque. And in the Enlisted Club, there's like seven plaques. <laughs> And the names are all the guys that made this made this event that actually went and had the last pint in the club. But you had to have a pint. And it's, it's like I think it's like 10, 10 bars, and you have to have witnesses and everything, and you have to drink one pint. And you can you can do Murphys too. So it was Murphys or, or okay. You do one pint in every bar, and then you the last one has to be in the in the enlisted mess or the uh, officers mess, and then the witnesses sign a thing, and then your name gets on the plaque forever. Nice. And, and you did that. Uh, and I got to about the sixth bar. Oh, that was okay, it. Okay. I mean, just the volume <laughs> of fluid being put into your body, you know, it's just, but I did, but I did become a fan of Guinness and Murphy's Irish stout. I still, I still drink both of them. So. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're very thick, aren't they? It's like, yeah. it's like having a meal. <laughs> and I, and then we got, the, I got the run the tunnels or Gibraltar. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. With, yeah. with the SBS. No, it's cool. With the SBS. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah, I I was in Gibraltar. Not I wasn't uh, there with the with the military in the sense of doing tasks or anything. Uh, but I I did when I was in. I was a um, a scuba diving instructor. So I I took a team out. Um, well, I, I didn't take him out. I was part of a team that went out, and we we were running lots of different dives. Um, but at that time, I was training for my army divers course, and so we would use the rock to do some good training. Yeah. Uh, run up to the top and see the monkeys and run back down. And the guy I was with, he was um, he was in the Royal Marines uh, Reserves, I guess you call it. And he was, yeah, he was he was taking me through my paces for sure because he was way fitter than me. Um, just like you, I wasn't the best on land, but I was great in the water. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, a great place to be. I've got a guy that, that uh, has worked for me off and on he's working for another company now but he still has a bad back from that gibraltar trip because we alternated with the sbs every morning uh, the sbs would take physical training one morning and then we'd get it the yeah. next morning for three weeks and man it never it never went the other direction it never it never got easier <laughs> it was how do we one up those assholes tomorrow yeah and we were doing i mean crazy crap and and running up to the top and back was you know sometimes just part of it is uh the calisthenics and the you know buddy lifts and all kinds of crazy stuff that messed up his back i guess uh then we had boxing we were doing we were doing boxing between us <laughs> you know it's it's it it's fun and it's challenging and then you go out and you you know then you do the day's training and then you get cleaned up and you go out and drink together you know, it's, it's a lot. It was a great, a great way to, you know, to have a career. Yeah. And it's great training for, for all aspects of the military. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a good times, good times. Okay. Then you, uh, mentioned you moved over as, ah, what was the rank? Was it chief? Yeah. Chief petty officer. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, over to the school, back to the school. Um, did you ask for that or did they recommend or did they tell? Uh, well, in those days you had to get selected to be an instructor. So I was, 
I think they put out a request for names and and somebody in my command thought I would be, I, I've been in the, what we call the training cell off and on throughout the eight years where I was teaching and training and the, you know, we're not in an active uh, unit. You kind of rotated, you go in for like six months and then come back out and jump into a platoon that was, that was gearing up. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was selected and then I was asked by whoever picked me, you know, would you be willing to go out there? And I said, yeah, sure. So that's how I ended up out there. I didn't put in a request to go to San okay. Diego. Yeah. And, um, so I did that for two years, went to school at night, finished up my degree cause you have to have a degree to become an officer in our Navy. And, um, and I was actually up for senior chief, the next, the second to highest rank when I got accepted to officer's Canada school. So. Right. I went so straight. whilst you're at, whilst you're at the school, how did you find that? Because like you said, you remember more of it now because you went back to oversee it essentially, I guess, or was yeah. you heavily involved with the actual training or was it more about the planning process? How, how was it from your well, side? It's, it's all choreographed. It's all line diagrammed it's all planned like a it's it's planned like a movie it's every every single day is storyboarded out it's timed out it's the resources the safety aspect of it the medical aspect of it the communications aspect of it it's i didn't realize that i mean my very first day walking into the office i to my horror they were briefing in great detail for the 14 mile run I showed up on the day of the 14 mile run. They'd moved it into first phase, I guess, over the ensuing eight years. And I'm like, oh God, I got to run in the soft sand on a 14 mile run. And and, and I was just terrified. I said, I'm gonna look like an idiot. I'm, I mean, I'm gonna end up quitting. Chief <laughs> <laughs> no, Strong's gonna fall behind and, and then I'm gonna get punished and I'm gonna end up in the goon squad with all the other guys that fell behind. But what I learned was that even when I was a student, there were these complicated machinations to make everything choreographed and to set up the psychology of, of every event. And then they were briefed just like a complicated special ops mission. So, I mean, I, I went up to one of the guys and I said, you know, what's going on? He says, the 14 mile run. And I said, oh, why is it so, I mean, because in my memory, 14 mile run was they said, hey, you're gonna have class at nine o'clock and then you're in the classroom and some guy walks in and says, hey, fuck that. Let's go I'm on the beach. And then he took us on a 14-mile run. That's how it happened, right? But yeah, they it was all choreographed. And yeah. I'm going, yeah, I mean, this is all planned out. <laughs> I was like at, at Disney World, but I got to see behind the scenes how all the puppets are moving and all the, you know. So uh, that was impressive and, and, and eye-opening. And then... Um, told one of the guys, I said, yeah, I'm a little worried. I'm going to be able to keep up with this. He goes, oh, we don't have to run the whole damn thing. He says, you'll be an outrunner, yeah. meaning you're going to be on the flanks. And we all rotate. And uh, if you ever think you're, you're got an issue, whatever, you just kind of raise your hand and then, you know, fall back. And then another guy will jump out of the truck and take your place. And, and then we know exactly where every single place is that they're going to circle. And so we can take breaks and all that. And, and, uh, and there's, there's places where they're going to accelerate the pace to stretch the class out. Then they're going to cut off the guys that are having a hard time. They're going to punish them. And it was all laid out on this big board. And I'm thinking, I've lived that. I had no idea that it was organized. <laughs> I had no idea. So that's the first, that was my first day. 
Um, I bet. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, just, just, just on that. Sorry. Um, so I, I went back during my time. I went back um, to our. So I was an engineer, royal engineer, um, and I went back to our training school. So where where they train from being a, a soldier to being a combat engineer, uh, and at that time that was when I was training for my army divers course. So I wanted to be part of these um, base or combat engineer training groups where there was a lot of uh, physical training. And I would go out with them. But because you knew what the next step was going to be, you knew, like you said, where they were doing the circles, where they were going to accelerate, your mindset was completely different and stronger. And you felt like you were running circles around these youngsters that should be way fit than you, but you've just got the upper hand and it's, yeah. it's a different feel completely. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, uh, yeah, the um, so since I was the second in command of that phase working for a lieutenant, our job was, we had some administrative functions. The lieutenant had mostly administrative paperwork functions because you're, you know, you're going from classes that are hundred plus down to nothing. So you're processing a lot of people out essentially. Right. Um, you are running Navy curriculum. So you're actually teaching classes and courses and there are people that are coming in and spot checking and observing that. And I was responsible for making sure all the instructors were qualified and stayed qualified in all these classes. Again, something I never had any perception was even a requirement. And uh, the if there were going to be any changes to the courses we had to do, the administration uh, to get approvals for the, the changes to the, the way the courses would be run, the curriculum, the events and all that, especially any physical events, because everything had been tested and developed over time. And there was a lot of wisdom baked in. And you didn't want somebody just to come along and just say, ah, oh, let's make it this or make it that. Because you change one little part of the experiment and it turns into a whole different outcome. So, for example, if you didn't make people carry boats on their heads at, at Bud's course, in 10 years, every seal would be three to four inches taller than prior generations. Because because okay. because carrying those boats hurts tall guys more than it hurts short guys. And this is something that mm-hmm. they learned over time. So, yeah, you can, I mean, it's, it's just little tiny tweaks can make big changes, so you have to be careful what you're doing. And there's a chain of, of people that have to approve almost anything that you try to adjust. You have very little latitude. Uh, everything Everything's controlled. So the other part of that experience, besides going to college at night, was the uh, the whole mental game and, and realizing how much mental game was choreographed and controlled and watching the reactions of the students. So now you're seeing the cause and effect. You're always on the other side of it, but now you get to see if I do this, they do this. If I do this, they do that. If I do this, half the class does this, but the other half of the class does that. And you're seeing there all the things I mentioned earlier about the look in their eyes and the way they act and their physical demeanor and their posture and and you know, do the officers step up and lead? Or do they crawl into their own little, you know, psychological fetal position and hope it all goes mm-hmm. away. And, and, you know, it's unfair because they're, they're people too. And just because they're, they're officers, they, they haven't been prepared for this particular thing, but they are being asked to step up. And that's also realized, I call it the officer bubble or the leader bubble. And maybe you've experienced this. If you give somebody leadership in, in a difficult situation, they, they tend to get through the difficult situation better than everybody else because they are focusing on everybody else. 
they have far less time to focus on their own little owies and their own little concerns and their their own frustrations or, or fears because they've got to get a head count. They've got to get a group of people from point A to point B. I didn't really understand this until we ran out of some officers and we started just grabbing enlisted guys and putting them in charge of different groups. Right. And all of a sudden they were acting the same way. So it wasn't about rank. It was about you're in charge, you're the father figure, now you're worried about your little ducklings, whatever. You're not you're not concerned about yourself so much. And the attrition mm-hmm. for officers has always been very, very low. And I don't think, from that observation in those two years, and personal observation as a student, I don't think it was because they were officers or because they had a college degree. I think it was because they had a reason to focus on something outside of their own misery. Okay, okay. So. It's good, good, uh, yeah, good viewpoint, I suppose, of that. Now, you mentioned about going over to being an officer yourself. Yeah. What made you have that mindset that that I'm going to switch over from what we would call an OR, an other rank, over to the officer aspect? Is it because of that was your next step in in your career, or was someone that suggested that maybe this would be a good good stepping stone for yourself? It was all economics. I had my second kid. Oh, okay. I had my second kid, and I was going to be up for senior chief at the same time I would have been going to Officers Canada School. I looked at the pay differential for say another five, six years. If I, even if I made it to master chief, the difference between master chief and if I'd gone to the officer track started getting to be wider and wider, wider economically. And, okay. and then there, eventually if I'm going to retire as a seal, there's an even a bigger gap. So that, that was the struggle in my mind was that against the opinion in probably all special ops units that officers aren't really needed and the enlisted guys rule the world. And, you know, the, there are units in, uh, special units inside of say the U S Marine Corps, like the recon guys, the army Rangers in Vietnam, which were then reconnaissance guys, they weren't taking down airfields and things. And they went out in six man teams without officers. There, there is a tradition of that. And in the SEAL teams, the officers went along, but, the officers had to do everything that enlisted guys had to do and vice versa. And in combat, there were enlisted guys that ran missions, you know, from time to time, and they didn't do any worse than the officers. So there was a different kind of appreciation of the enlisted experience and the the, the depth of experience. And for me to get to the, you know, the, the apex of that food chain and then say, nah, now I want to be a, an idiot, brand new officer. Mm. To my peer group, it looked like suicide or stupidity or a combination of both. So I, I had a lot of that pressure. And anybody I mentioned it to, that's pretty much the feedback I got. You know, do you want to be king of the hill as a master chief in a SEAL team? Or do you want to be some low life ensign, you know, a first lieutenant or something? And I didn't want, I didn't want that. But then I kept looking at, okay, how am I going to pay for these kids and all that? So that ultimately was what decided it for me was the difference in, in pay. Okay. And you mentioned about uh, completing a degree. Is that right? Yeah. Whilst you were there? Yeah. Um, how did you find that alongside running, you know, all the different classes? Yeah, it sucked. I uh, We had one car. San Diego is very, very expensive and we weren't getting paid a whole lot in those days. So... I rode a uh, 10-speed bike 13 miles in from south of 
or Coronado in the school was every morning. I came in early if I had anything to do with uh, the physical training. Sometimes I led PT, you know, calisthenics and all that stuff. And I usually had to be there if I wasn't leading it. And then we got we got through the day. Uh, again, you may or may not swim with some of the student events. You might be running with some of them. And um, and then around four o'clock, I would leave four four thirty. I would ride the bike thirteen miles back, and uh, then I would get in the the car and I would drive to night school. And then I'd get home around eleven thirty. Have to get through all the San Diego traffic, and I'd do the do it all over again for two years. Wow. And uh, and my wife had the car for the for the day. If she had doctor's appointments and stuff, or she wanted to take the kids, whatever. And, um, the, um, yeah, I think I just had, I just had to suck it up and do it. I, I think I got something out of, I mean, I was doing my, my business administration, um, degree. So I think I got a lot out of the learning, but not as much as I could have, because I was kind of in a half-ass state of fatigue and brain, brain fog almost all the time. <laughs> right. And, but I really got I really got strong legs from the uh, bicycle riding. Yeah, I bet, I bet, I bet. And so, what what are the steps that you had to take to um, become an officer? Uh, I'm guessing that you had to maybe have interviews to prove that you were good enough to be an officer. And then I'm yeah. guessing, did you have to go somewhere like another school to be taught how to be an officer? Yes, uh, you had to put in a request. And the request had to be approved. That was the first thing. Then you had to fill out uh, a package, which included everything about you, all your history, all your, um, obviously, awards, things like that. You had to write an essay, essentially, you know, why you wanted to do what you're requesting to do. Then you had to get, I think it was three written endorsements from officers. And if you got all that together... And every I was dotted and T was crossed. Then you presented it to the command. And then the command at a certain time each year would hold a board. And you may or may not be accepted to the board, depending on the strength of your package. And they knew how many ex-enlisted slots they had at Officers Canada School for SEALs. And that fluctuated. At one point, it was like unlimited. Then it was 11. The year I went up, it was three. So only three people were going to be picked for the for the board phase or maybe four or five and then three picked to actually go to Austria's Canada school. And there was a Navy captain and a couple of Navy commanders, SEALs, and you went in and they started asking you questions. And I'm sure there was some rhyme or reason to the questions. I've never been on the board uh, on the other end of it, so I don't know exactly how it was set up, but I passed that and I became one of the three people selected. And then I got... Um, that was sent to the Navy. The Navy then sent me orders to go to Officers Canada School in Newport, Rhode Island, the northeast part of the United States. And uh, I left San Diego after the two years there and entered that four-month course. Okay. And how did you find that course from being, what, 10 years in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the military? In a lot of ways, it was silly because it was the Navy's all focused on technology and engineering. So the there were 600 officer candidates, 300 in, that's a, that's in <laughs> the first two months and, and 300 in the second two months. So it's like, think of like, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior kind of thing. And 
there was a regimental commander student, similar to that boot camp experience I told you about, that was in charge and had a staff of four or five regimental officers. And then you had battalions with battalion staffs. And then the battalions had company officers with company staffs. And we were supposed to manage this big gaggle of 600 people. The entire block of instruction was naval engineering. It was all kinds of different boilers and turbines and, you know, seamanship and navigation, celestial navigation. It was essentially preparing naval officers to be naval officers and nothing to do with the SEAL teams at all. They had okay. a couple of courses in leadership and a couple of courses in naval tactics. Ironically, I ended up being the number one in leadership and naval tactics because that was the only one I, I, I Nobody else had been there. They're all college guys. So I got those two. Right. I was not number one in engineering, by the way. Um, so uh, I got through the first half of cleaning toilets and marching around and going to class. And every night, kind of like a POW camp, the uh, you have a lights out. And then all these people would come down and tap on my door. And I have to shut the lights up, let them in my room, stuff towels underneath the door. And then I would teach them how to do the things that they didn't know how to do, you know, things that, about the Navy, because they were civilians essentially. And I would do that for a couple of hours every night. I would just hold school and, uh, and then, you know, we'd shut the lights off. They'd sneak out, you know, we'd close the door again. And, and we did that for, you know, for the first two months, that was pretty much what we did. I helped some of the guys that were freaking out about being yelled at. I mean, literally having psychological breakdowns. I taught a couple of guys how to cheat on some when they're being punished. Like holding books out, okay. holding books out, you know, they're at the very end of a hallway and they're holding the books out. And of course they can't, you can't hold this big book out very long. You start trembling. And I'd say, just slowly sink your elbows in, put your elbows up against your chest. They can't tell how long your arms are from that. <laughs> I'm telling, yeah. telling these young, these young college students how to do this. And then they do it. And they're like, whoa. So I was like that, like POW school stuff. But then I got picked to be the regimental commander. So for, I ended up being the regimental commander for my second two months, which moved me to a different part of the building. I had my own office, I had a really big room to sleep in and everything. And uh, I had a staff and now I was in charge of the administration of the 600 candidates, which was uh, a lot more than you might think. You have 600 people at any given day, you've got 25 to 30 people that got some kind of medical thing you've got to somehow administer to. You've got probably 20 or 30 discipline problems you got to figure out how to administer to. We had to march and practice marching all the time. And some of the leaders were, were not suited for leadership. And so there were leadership drama and things that were going on. Um, and we had a guy that tried to commit suicide on the fourth floor. So me and my, my regimental adjutant, who was a, um, for four years, was a starting defensive end for Alabama football like six, four and a half, six, five, huge dude named Mike White. We went up to the fourth floor and this guy is sitting in the window, you know, kind of crouched in there. He had enough. And so we were, I was sitting there talking to him very calmly. And you can imagine, so I'm like 150 pounds, five foot nine. Mike White's like 250 pounds. And so we're standing in there and I'm getting closer and closer as I'm talking to this guy. And every time he'd look out the window, I'd slide a little closer and I got him kind of calmed down. And after about five minutes of this, Mike goes, this shit, took two steps, grabbed the guy, threw him into the room and shut the window. <laughs> so that, that, um, the 
thing happened with a guy that uh, refused to jump off the tower pool. He was the nephew of a Navy four-star admiral. So I get a call from the director of OCS, and he says, hey, you're a SEAL. Can you think you can teach this guy to be comfortable? He has to jump off this 40-foot tower. It's a, it's a graduation requirement. It's about jumping off the side of a ship, right, in case of a fire or something, abandoned ship thing. So on Saturday morning, me and my adjutant go over there because we're going to go work work out. And uh, if you go to the pool, this guy shows up, and we start talking to him, you know. And it takes him 10 minutes to, to go up the ladder leading up to the platform. So we get him up there. He's holding on to the bar. And he goes, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I'm talking to him, talking to him. And Mike's standing up there. And uh, after about 10 minutes trying to get him to edge his way to the edge of the platform, Mike looks at his watch, looks at me and said, you know, we're, we're not going to have much time to work out at this pace. He goes, fuck this shit. Grabs the guy. Checks him off the top of the platform. The guy goes, and he goes, he jumped, right? He jumped, went over to the, went down, went over the phone, called the director and said, he jumped. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I still have to go through the classes. I'm still taking tests and all that. But, you know, every Friday afternoon, I'm leading this big 600 person, um, you know, 18th. I mean, excuse me, 19th century exercise of marching all the all the battalions and everything with my swords and, you know, and fife and drums and all that stuff into a drill hall with all these VIPs that we have to go through this whole ceremonial thing every Friday. And, uh, yeah, and then um, eventually, you know, I had a conversation with the director of OCS and I said, that you guys are teaching these guys to be leaders or anything. I mean, it this is, it's like fork and knife schools, you know, and a little bit of engineering. And he goes, yeah, because 95% of these guys are going straight to the next level of engineering school. They're not, and they're, and it's going to be years before they're in charge of anybody. They're going right, to right, right. be in charge of looking at, you know, gauges. Wow. I said, okay. Yes. Okay. So, so how, how come you were put into that role for those final two months? Had you, is it because of your experience prior to going there? Is that it was why? entirely that the, uh, the efficiency, effectiveness, leadership at the top, if it's not rock solid, it, it, it the whole place turns into chaos. And they learned that over time. So they hoped for ex-enlisted candidates ah, who knew a okay. little bit about the Navy and a little bit about, you know, how to run things. When I showed up and I'm, you know, been a chief for three years and I'm wearing a SEAL trident on day one, all the company officers, these were actual naval officers, lieutenants, that were all kind of like the, the sponsor of every company had like a a proctor so to speak looking out for that company they knew that their company life would be perfect not only in the first two months but most likely i'd be on the regimental staff therefore i could help protect their people and, and their company and so i the the day that they made selection of who goes into what company was in this massive drill hall every table for every battalion whatever and every company was there and I was getting moved from line to line to line by these lieutenants. I didn't know what the hell was going right. on. I'd get about two people away from the table and then somebody would and grab me and run me down 15 tables and stick me in the line. And um, finally a woman lieutenant grabbed me and stood next to me until I was in her company. She, she wouldn't let anybody take me. <laughs> Only oblivious to what the heck was going on, you know, <laughs> especially the long view, but they were all absolutely sure I was going to be in the regimental staff, but to be the regimental commander, 
kind of meant like I was going to protect my clan, which was my former company, right? right? So. Yeah, 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 fair. And so you complete that, and do you know that you're going to go back to the SEALs, uh, to the SEAL teams, yeah. or was there a possibility you could have gone back no, to... it was it was... No? Yeah, that was my that was my only warfare, especially, you know, I wouldn't have gone if it was going to be okay. anything else. Oh, that's good, um, that's good. And so where where did you get sent to? Uh, do you go back to Team 2 or do you go to I went to team? SEAL Team 4, which was also in Virginia Beach. And their focus was Central and South America. Okay. So I did four. But you're going there now as, as an officer? Yes, as a brand new ensign. I, uh, I showed up two days after graduation and I walked in and they said, the uh, XO wants to see you. And I went in and he said, we're sending you to El Salvador. And my family was still up in Maryland. And I was supposed to be looking for a place for us to live. And I said that. And he goes, well, you'll be back. It's just two weeks. We just need to, we know, because they all knew me. Because I was an East Coast guy. Ah, okay. Yeah. And they said, basically, they wanted an officer down there. But, you know, they're not going to send an ensign or a lieutenant JG because they're not going to know anything. But, heck, I showed up. <laughs> so, so I was like the binary solution. So they send me down there. And then I'm there for like two weeks. And then I get... A call and they say, "Hey, we want you to go to Honduras next." So then I had to go to the, Hon- the Honduran border, and I spent uh, three weeks there. And then they were going to send me to El Salvador again. So I said, uh, "Hey, I got to get back. My family's stuck up in Maryland." So they let me come back, and I got my family down, and we we found a house to rent. And then they said, "You know that four month thing I told you about? That's after buds and jump school." They said yep. they had decided because that SEAL Team 4 was a UDT team that they had never really uh, fully embraced all the SEAL training of a regular SEAL team and they were changing that. And they were making sure that they were doing everything or even more than a, like a SEAL Team 2 or a SEAL Team 1 was doing for training and preparing their people. And so they had decided to do that four-month intermediary course of advanced or of intermediate training and they also decided that there was going to be no exceptions. And okay. then I showed up. And the, the CEO Nexo wanted to use me for a bunch of other special projects. And the master chief in charge of the training group said, no exceptions. And he knew me. We were good, really good friends from when we were young. And so we sat down and he said, this is what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to get these guys to get smart about this and be serious. And we can't have everybody showing up here to be an exception. And I said, so you're talking about just the regular four month, you know, like more map and compass. And he goes, yeah. And I said, eh, sure. What the hell I'll do it. And he, he was really happy because he, he knew that the CEO was, the CEO would do what he wanted to do. Cause he was the master chief in charge of training, but um, he knew that this captain wanted me to do something else. So that's what I did. I jumped into a four month intermediary course, which was probably one of the most exhilarating times I've ever had. I mean, I show up, the instructors are all have half my experience. Um, they're coming out and trying to hunt my little squad in the woods and I'm running circles around them. I'm, I'm hijacking the keys to their vehicles. I'm stealing all their goodies out of the back of their, their cars, all their food and stuff. My guys, they're scared to death because they're right out of buds. They're scared to death. We're going to get in trouble. I said, don't worry about it. You know, we're doing all kinds of crazy crap because I know all the stupid games. 
and um, we're sleeping we're sleeping on a little island in the middle of the swamp because they're not going to come out here in the swamp you know all, all kinds of crap um went into the red zone and on, on the uh, live from artillery range because i knew the army put like an extra kilometer of, of safe space around the real danger area and nobody would come in there and we're in there with all the super giant deer and you know 500 pound beavers because it's like jurassic park because nobody can hunt in there so it's gone back to the you know the ancient times of, of animals and never having to worry about man um yeah so i had a blast i mean it was i mean a couple of sessions where I, the master chief sat me down and said you know you're 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 making my guys look pretty stupid and i said well they are pretty stupid and uh <laughs> and i got you know just try not to be so flamboyant and in their face i mean you know tying them up and throwing me in the back of the of the pickup that was a little bit too much you know that kind of thing i mean i didn't know my guys <laughs> did but um yeah but it was fun and uh to, to be honest it was a really good thing for me because i hadn't been an officer so i had four months as a very seasoned seal operator but i had four months to practice being an officer in that role and i think it was a good idea that i went through it and uh and then and then I went into my first SEAL platoon at SEAL Team 4 as an officer. Nice. That's cool. And then how long was you was you there for? Um, was you in SEAL Team 4 for the remainder of your time in? No. So the the rule is you spend, as an officer, you spend two years at a SEAL Team, then rotate. And oh, okay. I went in there and made one deployment to the Mediterranean and uh, in my first year. And I came back and... SEAL Team 4 was given three contingency operations, uh, the invasion of Panama, the invasion of Haiti, and the invasion of Nicaragua. So I got into the planning team because that's one of the things I did at SEAL Team 2. I was kind of in the intelligence cell and did a lot of planning work with officers and things. So I ended up in the planning team. I ended up in the briefing of the plans, that briefing team, and... They decided because one of them, the, the invasion of Panama, was considered to be something that could happen any minute. The Navy made the decision to keep me there for a double tour. So I ended up being at SEAL Team 4 for four years. And I guess it was, uh, they made that decision and I was there for about another, I think it was my, my end of my third year when... Um, my my platoon and now I was now I was a lieutenant now I was in charge of a platoon so I went from being an assistant officer in the first two years to being a platoon commander and the platoon was at that time the the combat unit for SEALs it was basically sixteen guys two officers one senior enlisted guy and the rest were different different grades going down in ranks and uh, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff ordered SEAL Team Four to send my platoon down to Panama. And we were down there for a month doing preparatory surveillance and uh, reconnaissance for all kinds of different units. And then the invasion happened, and I ended up staying there for another six months doing um, missions all across, 36 missions all total, across all the different areas of Panama, East, West Coast. Then the, uh, the four-star in charge of the Southern Command said, okay, I've got enough people here. I don't need all these guys that came down from the States anymore. Get out. So I actually came back from a mission and where we had like a hundred seals in this compound, there were zero. 
they were all gone. They'd all been ordered back to the States. Same thing happened to my counterpart in the Green Beret. Um, he went from having uh, an ODA team, a Charlie company of an ODA team. All of a sudden, he had 150 SF guys. And then all of a sudden, one day, they're all gone. And he and I would meet at the planning site where they had all the missions up on the boards and stuff. And we went in there and they still had like 20 or 30 special ops missions. And we're like, well, why do we, why are there so many missions? Why'd you, why did we get rid of everything? It's just the two of us now. It's basically about 36 guys to try to divvy up these missions. A lot of them were counter narcotics, chasing down guys, bad guys that had camped out in Panama under uh, Noriega, Noriega's protection. Um, we were still hunting for Noriega's top leaders. Um, there were there were some other nefarious guys, international type guys that were hidden in the country that we were hunting down. So it was a lot of that um, after everybody left. But I ended up staying down there for seven months with my platoon. And okay. that ended my fourth year at SEAL Team 4. So your time as an officer, um, maybe it's from that seven, seven months when you're away. Is there a, an experience that you can share um, that maybe really in your mind kind of like sealed the deal that, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm a good officer. I've, I've made my, I've made my, my stance here with, with my team. Is there anything you can share for that kind of experience? I, I hoped that being a prior enlisted SEAL and being a good planner and being, I understood the planning elements, not just complex plans, but I knew why, you know, keeping things simple was also critical. Um, I thought I had good judgment. I hoped all of that would come together and I would do all the right things. Cause the one thing any combat leader doesn't want to have happen is that they make a, a decision or a misjudgment that causes somebody to get hurt or killed. You know, the mission success is, you know, that that's, that's great. That's the corporate objective, right? But once you're in, in harm's way like that, you really don't want to fuck up. You know, you just don't want to fuck up. So it's like a parent, a parent that has a swimming pool, you know, all you think about is I don't want my kid to, to go in that swimming pool and drown. I got to teach my kid how to swim. We got to figure out a way to keep him out of that pool. Cause that pool is like a threat. And I, I'd never live with myself if my kid died in the pool because I bought a pool or because we moved into a house with a pool. You just have this kind of thing in the back of your mind. Um, what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario, I think for any combat leader is that they make, they make a call that doesn't go well. And you can come back and, and, and uh, Monday morning quarterback the thing and say, it wasn't your fault. It was external issues. It was the guy made, a, you know, a guy went left instead of right. It's the fog of war. Yeah. You know, that's bullshit. Cause you end up still thinking it's your responsibility. There's no way you can get away from it. Okay. So I started out with that high bar and, uh, and nobody told me that nobody said, this is the way it's going to be. And this is what you should be aiming for. I just, that's how I'd kind of built it up in my mind. And I had massive amounts of, of time listening to combat veterans, you know, listening to the stories and man, so many of them were just total screw ups. You know, it was like getting out of a mistake, getting out of a bad intelligence, you know, turning a really bad situation into something better or just escaping, you know, there were so many things like that. And, uh, I thought, okay, so the, the odds are I'm going to run into the same situation. So I'm, I've got to be, I've got to do my thing. And, uh, 
and I, and I did, I got through it and I didn't get anybody killed or, or wounded. I, um, I felt like I'd made really good decisions and, uh, I realized that this is just me, but I think a lot of, a lot of leaders would say the same thing. You get away with it once, twice, three times, you start to feel okay. I got to hang for this. I got to, I got to knack for this, thing, this particular job. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You start wondering. You pass ten missions. You start thinking. It's like every cliche World War Two, you know, bomber movie. You know, this is the one. The next one's the one. There's no way I could be this lucky. You know, right? You know, fate's waiting for me. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So you start wondering if you're rolling the dice. You start wondering if you're. You start second guessing yourself, and you start kind of unraveling your your mojo. You start saying, well. I, I know the right way to do it is this way. But then you start saying, but well, maybe, and uh, I went through that phase somewhere around the 20th mission. I started getting a little concerned with my own abilities. And, um, and part of it was because the more successful you are, the more you start following a pattern of a formula and you start getting comfortable being successful. Same thing happens in business. And, and sure, if he's out there, he's, he's going to trip you up. He's going to throw, throw a monkey wrench into your, into your game. But you think, yeah, but I'll be able to handle it because I've, I've been able to handle everything up to this point. Now I had a mission where we got lost, a pretty critical mission. And unfortunately, lots of eyes were on. We were going after an intelligence officer and we were coming in through a swamp and the swamp was a tidal swamp at an 18 foot tidal range. We judged to get in there at high tide because of a bunch of logistics problems. The patrol boat that was going to take us and drop us off was late. We got there two hours late as we were going in, the tide was actually coming out really fast. And all of our, we had three rubber boats and I think 12 guys. And we ran aground in the tidal mud wash off the beach about 300 yards away from sand with these boats each weighed with all the gear, the, the fuel bladders, engines, and everything else probably weighed about 500, 600 pounds. We get out of the boats and we sink up to our waist in mud. And now we've got to move the boats at about six to eight inch increments forward for the next three hours. And the uh, by the time we got to the beach, we're now we're like five hours behind the timeline. And we're absolutely 100% done. We're, we got probably 95 pounds of bullets and gear on us, not counting, you know, the fact that we're licking this, these boats. So we get to the beach and we walk the boats down to what is apparently the entrance to the swamp area. Cause we we're going to take the swamp all the way in about two or three kilometers. And that was going to put us right in behind this compound. It was a farm compound where this guy was staying hiding. Excuse me. Um, the maps were terrible. This was before GPS was 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 uh, legitimate and reliable. So we go in there and we got lost. I got lost, and uh, I looked at the time and I realized we're just not going to make it. We we left the boats because we couldn't get the boats any further. Now we're wading chest deep mud and crap. So that bay is another fifty pounds heavier per man. Climbing over these these kind of like mango tree roots that are kind of like an obstacle course from hell, pitch black. 
we have night vision goggles, but you can't see anything anyway because there's no ambient light because the overhead triple canopy and stuff. And then I stopped and I realized, okay, I gotta, I gotta rethink this thing. And so I decided to make a 90 degree turn to the left and just punch out of the swamp and see where we end up. So I wanted to do it quickly. So I'm doing it semi compass bearing, but I'm trying to get out of there quick. And what I ended up doing is I ended up doing a curve and we got out and we're sitting there in the dark and uh, we stopped to take, take a rest and it's about 3.30 in the morning. We have to hit at exactly like 5.30 when the sun's about to break. We've got hundreds of army guys in orbit in helicopters that are going to come in once we seize this compound. We've got eyes in the sky, guys. We've got, this is all the way up to the four star. Everybody's looking at this spot. And uh, and I'm sitting there on a road. Well, I wasn't at the road yet, but I was, at, I was sitting out there outside the edge of the uh, swamp. And as I'm sitting there, I suddenly hear something. And it's the swishing sound of water hitting the beach. And I grabbed my chief and we walked about 20 yards and kind of broke under the tree hedge. And I had completely looped back down and I was only about 30 yards away from the water, from the ocean. And that was the low point. That was, that was the low point for me as an officer in my entire career as an officer, because it was all on me. My guys trusted me and I, you know, I felt like it was my arrogance or my, my uh, obstinance that I didn't figure it out earlier. And now we only have, you know, a small amount of time. And by the map, we're, we're, you know, a good hump away from the, uh, from the site. So I told the chief to take another guy and just kind of do a big look around, see if he found anything. Comes back, says, I, I just found a dirt road. It's not very wide. And it goes exactly inshore, straight towards where we want to go. So I got everybody together and I said, guys, I'm sorry, we're lost, but I know we're at the beach. We found a road. What we're going to do is we're going to jog. <laughs> and with all this gear and mud on us, we're going to jog. And I'm going to put a uh, machine gunner and another guy up front as a double point and put a little separation and we're just going to jog. And uh, if we run into something, we'll just use standard SOP, SOPs to, to take it. Otherwise, hopefully we'll get to this place on time. And just before 5.30, there was a fog bank that dropped in. Uh, so then we slowed down. We're walking through the fog. And uh, one of the, not the machine gunner, but the other guy comes running back to me and said, I found a, I found a uh, picket fence. And so I sent them forward to look around. They came back. It's the compound. It was 5.26 or something like that. Wow. Pulled out the radio. I sent out the execution code word for we're about to execute. Pulled everybody up and said, you guys know the layout of the place. Let's go. And we took the compound down. We took it down. We grabbed the guy. And uh, everybody came roaring in, helicopters and vehicles and all that stuff. The sun came up. And, of course, all the Army guys thought, yeah, just another perfect precision SEAL mission. Perfectly executed. Perfect. You know, we, between wiping our face and stuff with our hands and stuff, we were completely coated in mud, right? We looked like, we looked pretty bad. And then they gave us, uh, you know, kudos and said, you guys need a lift. And I was about to say yes. And then the chief goes, hey, we still have our boats in the middle of the swamp. 
<laughs> and I, I looked at him and I went, no, nah, no, nah, that's okay. Yeah. And so we went back into the swamp and started looking for our boats. And the tide had come back up. So we were you know, half swimming and bobbing and going over the obstacles. And about two and a half hours later, we, we found the found the boats. And then we got the boats. And because there was some water, we were able to kind of move the boats and pull the boats until we got some deeper water. And then we powered out. And um, and that was that was a learning experience for me and a humbling moment for me. Yeah. And I was a little I was a little bit different after that about not putting so much weight on my own shoulders about being perfect or even, you know, putting too much weight in the experience I had up to that point. And I got a little bit more flexible in uh, in just taking the, the, the mission or the environment in the circumstances as they came at me and thinking it through more incrementally rather than having the big bold plan go, you know, soup to nuts and finish it. Mm. So yeah. big, big learning curve, but a great, a great yeah. story to share. So thank you for that. Um, and the fact that you're on time, pull back all those hours that, that, that's, that's events. Yeah. I don't know why I, I deserve that, but. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, so you, you mentioned that you spent four years in the end at, uh, SEAL Team 4, is that correct? Uh, right. Where did you go next? Because I'm, I'm guessing it was either your last uh, drafting, posting, or one of the two last ones. No, so then I went, so they, there was some confusion in, in the new U.S. Special Operations Command that had been created. And it really didn't start to uh, spread its wings until around 89 or 1990. It was run by all army guys at the top initially. And uh, they told the Navy SEALs and the Air Force Special Operations Command that um, they were going to kind of take over all land warfare oriented training. So the army was going to train SEALs how to be SEALs on the ground and how, how the Air Force should move on the ground and all that. And eventually they even said we all had to go through Army Ranger School as a kind of a man test because that's what they were doing. So that was not taken real well, received real well. And as a part of that, the first part, the the idea that the um, our whole training pipeline was kind of under threat, the Admiral in charge of the SEALs decided to do something that was kind of offensive and defensive at the same time. He didn't know exactly when they might do this, but he wanted to be ready if they came out to evaluate first buds, then that intermediate four month training, and then any follow on training. So he asked the East coast and the West coast for one person that could speak for either coast to become the officer and the second officer in charge of the land warfare phase of buds and come out and completely revamp it so that it was compliant enough that it would survive and that it would convince U.S. Special, Special Operations Command that it, the Army didn't need to come in there and do anything. Because there was an opinion in the Army that SEALs just should stay in the water. Right. That was kind of the, yeah. Um, and it, which is odd because at that point, you know, there's no great SEAL missions or stories about them being in the water and doing things so much. It's all land-based. So I got, I was this one that was selected for the East Coast. And a Chief Warrant Officer was selected on the West Coast. It was a, a Vietnam guy. 
And the two of us had never worked together, didn't know each other. So my orders were to go to Coronado. So I went out there and I um, sat down with the guy and I had worked a lot with the army down in Panama in a lot of different aspects their, their senior command structure, uh, their operational management structure. And then obviously with the, the green break hunter works and all any second or born, a lot of other guys that were supporting my missions. Mm-hmm. I knew what they, I knew what they did well. And I knew that they had these books and these certain kinds of rigid, uh, standard operating operating procedures that they, they held dear. And we didn't so much, we were much, much more flexible and adaptable and, and that's part of what I said the concern is going to be. They're going to come in and, and we're not going to look like we have anything written down and we don't have anything that explains what we do and why we do it. And the Army's got that in spades. So uh, we started redesigning the course and the, the last nine weeks of, of basic SEAL training. And I, I basically said, you know, get rid of everything that looks like a man test, get rid of everything that looks like, you know, a fun thing like, repelling or something those are all advanced skills we'll go to the basics it's it's rifle rifle marksmanship tactical patrol skills it's uh demolitions but but actual practical demolitions not uh engineering demolitions because at that time it was all engineering demolitions um we're going to teach them basically combat demolitions how to how to make things expediently how to how to uh, set charges off expediently and uh, we're going to put everything together as live fire, no, no blanks. Okay. And we're going to um, uh, do all this, and then we're going to put together combat conditioning courses that are worse than any, you know, punishment session because they're going to they're going to evolve where you're running with your kit. And as you go through each class, excuse me, as you go through each class, if you learn about map and compass, you, you're now going to have a, a compass pouch on your on your web belt. When you learn about load-bearing equipment, now you can have an H harness attached to your web belt. When you learn about the rifle, you're gonna carry that rifle everywhere you go. When you learn about, that's how we kind of evolved. And then we went to that um, training camp at San Clemente Island, and from that point forward, they had to eat, sleep, breathe, move with a weapon in their hand. They could be stopped by any instructor at any time to, to ask, answer questions or demonstrate proficiency. Um, we made all marksmanship. You had to be an expert by the Navy standard. Up to that point, it wasn't even a standard. You just got a familiarization, and then you let the SEAL teams train you. Um, and it's interesting. Me and the um, me and the the warrant officer, a guy named George Hudak, trained guys for so long and trained, you know, third world country soldiers and stuff. We knew for a fact that these guys could do this. No problem. Everybody else thought that we were teaching them too advanced. It was a weird kind of paradigm that everybody thought that what we were talking about was too advanced. Yeah, this is what they learned in in, in Army boot camp, Marine boot camp, and then they go to their intermediate inter- infantry training way before they ever become special operators. And so you're, this, this pushback was actually kind of proving the point that we don't have basic infantry skills, that we don't have basic, you know, if you don't know what defilade and infilade is because you were never taught anything, then you, you've just failed the test, guy. You know, mm-hmm. you, you deserve to have an Army guy come in and teach you. So um, we put them in camis. At the time, they were wearing these green fatigues, which are kind of like the prisoner, Bud's prisoner student garb. Put them in camis on day one of third phase. And the first day we started with our new program, the phones blew up. The Admiral's office phones blew up. Once the uh, the uh, 
the East Coast woke up and found out they they started calling because we were destroying the tradition. Right. You know, we were making them, they were, we were saying they were seals already. And so I got called on the carpet, me and the warrant officer had to explain our logic, even though I'd been approved. And then they, they finally said, okay. And it was wildly successful. It was so successful. We even taught um, close quarters battle, room entry. And with simple, simple half wall mock-ups mock of simple rooms, just simple room entry techniques and how to approach the door and everything that wasn't in there. I was trying to look at everything that you would learn in a basic uh, or intermediate infantry training course at a minimum had to be in our basic course. And then anything that was specific to SEALs, like the, the, the demolitions and things, swimming in the demolitions, waterproofing and swimming in everything, going straight to live fire execution of a mission, coming back off the live fire, getting back in the water, getting back in the boat. Nothing crazy, nothing weird. And you know what? It's It's been that way ever since. So that was um, the point of me going to that to that uh, school again. Uh, I also got sucked into, because of these debates going on about the role of SEALs in the future with USOCOM, I got pulled into a group called the Strategy and Tactics Group, which was two guys at the time, two officers. And we would sit there and muse and pontificate about the role of SEALs in different areas around the world, how they interact with other units, other main forces, other, other battle plans or campaign plans write up white papers, you know, one-page thought pieces and stuff. So I, I, I learned a lot from these guys because I'd never been in a staff. I'd never interacted with staff. And uh, so I learned how to write. I learned how to um, put opinions on paper without pissing everybody off. So more of a, not so much political, but just more, more thoughtful and influential writing instead of just putting it out there, you know, like it or don't like it, screw you, you kind of thing, because then you don't influence anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of my time there, the end of the two years, the mini submarine program was deemed to be too expensive and they were going to get rid of it. And the, the Navy Sea Systems Command sent a letter to the Admiral and said, you've got 30 days to come up with something. And we had a, a, a SEAL team on each coast that focused only on that mini submarine capability. I get called in because uh, I had written a lot of things. I had also written something that helped us stay out of, of uh, Army Ranger School. And uh, the Admiral said, hey, you always come up with some great ideas. Come up, come up with an idea to, you know, to keep the mini submarine around. I'm like, I've never been in a mini submarine. I don't even know what they look like. Right. He goes, well, we don't, we don't have any time. So he looked at my commanding officer who, who ran the mini submarine basic school in our, in our school. He said, give him everything he needs to study. And I said, well, I'm getting ready to go to San Clemente Island for the next two weeks. He goes, we'll take it all out with you. So the next day I get a bunch of these, these canvas bags delivered to me filled with Navy publications about that thick about all the schematics and working plumbing of a mini submarine. And uh, I threw him in the back of a pickup truck, put him on the plane, went out to the island, and I'm sitting there thinking, sort of looking at him and they're, they're engineering stuff, you know. I don't even know what this stupid thing can do. But I did know that the number one mission demand signal at the time was surveillance, strategic surveillance using trained snipers. 
So I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool if this was kind of like the ultimate underwater stealth helicopter that deployed SEAL snipers. Again, totally ignorant to the idea that it was really supposed to be used to sink ships, you know, right. but it hadn't been used to sink ships. That's why the Navy was going to get rid of it. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote that as my first sentence that, uh, you know, the designation of the mini submarine, uh, the name of it was the, uh, the ultimate underwater stealth delivery platform for the delivery of reconnaissance surveillance, Naval Special Warfare reconnaissance surveillance teams to address and exploit weaknesses of strategic targets. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then I wrote like two more paragraphs. So it was like a little bit more than half of a piece of paper handwritten. And then we didn't have facts at the island or anything. And we didn't have, back then we didn't have Wi-Fi and everything. So I called the, uh, the captain's secretary and I read it to her over the phone and she typed it. And did, I did the rest of my time out at the island. I came back a couple of days later. The captain said, come on, we're going to go see the Admiral again. And I said, well, what, what's going on now? He goes, he just said he wanted to talk to us. So I go down there and he says, uh, uh, your paper did the trick. And I'm looking at him because I've written a lot of stuff. And I'm like, sir, he said, you know, your, your paper about the submarine, the mini submarine. They, they gave us a year. Oh, so you need to figure out how you're going to actually make that happen, what you, what you put in that paper. And I looked at him and said, you know, I, I have zero experience in mini submarines. I, I don't know anything about them. He goes, well, you're about to, because I'm sending you to the submarine command, mini submarine command in Virginia Beach. Really? <laughs> so I ended up going to Virginia Beach, and I walked in there and saw my first one. And uh, I wasn't trained in them and all that. So that that experience was interesting because I had to take a lot of the things I learned through that strategy and tactics group. How do I influence? How do I write these things down? And from pure ignorance, which is a good place sometimes, it's it's good that you don't know all the rules and all the things that, that are that you shouldn't be doing. And uh, I told the enlisted guys, you know, if you guys could figure out a way to put all this gear in this thing you know, all the gear you're going to need for a full mission with all these snipe, all the sniper stuff, the radios and everything else, then, then you've, we've got it. Then we can actually do a proof of concept. Four hours later, I got called into a big hangar and they showed me how they'd figured it out. Yeah. And I go, I go holy shit, guys. We've, we've actually got something that might work. And so I had to write that up and then they didn't have snipers and mini submarine teams so that was the next problem okay they didn't need them they didn't need them so then i had to try to fight to get a whole bunch of them set over and transferred over and then i built a task unit of 38 guys to uh, be able to fly the submarines maintain the submarines and do a lot of other things plus the sniper team and left and uh and then we did a proof of concept and we showed that the whole thing could work on a, on a live fire sniper mission and down in the Caribbean. And, uh, I said, there you go. They said, great. You're now in command of a, of task unit, Charlie, and you were deploying to the Mediterranean with this capability for six months. <laughs> right. So, right. okay. So that's what I did. I ended up being a, uh, deployed task unit commander as Lieutenant. I was up for Lieutenant commander, but still I was Lieutenant. And I was, uh, uh, partnered with the submarine 
uh, Best Tech submarine captain, and uh, we had six months of incredible success and in doing a lot of real things that I still can't talk about. Okay. And uh, we, uh, kind of like we were talking about before about the medals and stuff, we were involved in stuff off of, off the Turkish uh, border in Iraq. We were involved in the Adriatic and the Serbian thing. We were, we had, I had guys, snipers down in Mogadishu. I had, I had, we were everywhere because we could be. And I reported directly to the Admiral at Sixth Fleet. And uh, I had no intermediaries and they would just say, go, go, go. And I would just do it. I'd either fly or I would take my partner's submarine like an Uber and we would go to where we had to go. Wow. And, um, and do what we had to do. And um, ironically, most of it didn't involve the mini submarine at all. It was just that we were so flexible as a unit because I had so many SEALs and it was so capable okay. that I could do a lot of things the other guys in the theater couldn't do. So that submarine, because of all those missions, because we were one unit, became the most decorated submarine since World War II when we came back. Every guy on that submarine got like three rows of ribbons and metal, NATO medals, all kinds of stuff. Wow. And um, the, uh, all my guys got stuff. But halfway through that deployment, as I was sending back these these uh, reports of what we were doing, the Admiral directed both these special teams, you will now go to this, this format. There will be task orders. You're not going to do it the way you do it before. Change all the sniper billets and all that. And so that's that changed forever then too. Wow. So you've had a big influence on on today's, uh, I guess. Uh, I don't know what to call them. Tasks, operations. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, have you are you familiar with the movie Lone Survivor? Yes. About the yes. Yeah. All right. Well, that was um, the mini submarine team in Hawaii. Those were those were snipers. So that would have never happened if all the stuff I just told you hadn't happened. That was. Okay. That became the way of the way of business. So, and it's it's evolved again since then. Yeah. But uh, it, it was like that at least for the next 15, 20 years. And the um, you know, the takeaway for me from all that, it's a it's a different level of leadership. It's a different level of of negative consequence management because it's not necessarily that you're going to get people killed the same way. But it's very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts and the planning was more interacting with other nations and other units and other kinds of, you know, militaries. And, uh, and then I had to trust my subordinate leaders for the first time I had to send out a Lieutenant to Mogadishu or a Lieutenant someplace else mm. and, and, and trust and hope that they could do all the things I, I knew they had to do. So, um, that's when I kind of learned how to, you know, at some point you just have to suck it up and trust that the guys are going to do the best they can even though you're ultimately responsible, it's not the same visceral kind of responsibility when you're pushing guys through a door, you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, just briefly to finish off on this area, um, you call it mini-sub. Is is that because that group is part of a actual sub or are they actual miniature submarines that... No, they're miniature submarines. They are miniature submarines. Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure if they've it's been, like They've a, been around since World War Two. Cool. In, in some form or fashion, everybody's got one. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, just, and it does... the technology's evolved and, um, yeah. So it's a mini submarine and it's, it's, uh, it gets around various ways. It's, it's logistically moved various ways, but, uh, 
but it's it's small it's little it's it's uh it's a contraption yeah 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 that's brilliant that's brilliant um so it sounds like your last the last few years were very busy because of all these different segments yeah. that you were put into and and right sort this out can you yeah, fix they, this problem they can extended you... me they extended me in uh again you know, i thought it would be a two-year tour and they extended me it ended up being about a year and a half so i was up for lieutenant commander i was told i got deep selected for lieutenant commander what that means is they frock you uh you wouldn't get paid for it but you get to wear it okay like and, acting uh, like acting we would call it over here yeah 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 and uh at the same time i had little kids and i was i was i was injured quite a few times i got 80 percent disability from my service time i'd been in a parachute accident um messed my back up so i started looking at it and the thing is the uh the special special ops game is a lot like professional sports contact sports you start off and you you know you you're this brilliant young thing with with no no cuts or bruises and you're at blazing speed and amazing amazing instincts and then they start dropping you out of airplanes and helicopters onto things that don't move like buildings and cement and um and you're you're falling into boats and you're being you just all kinds of crazy stuff and you start to get beat up i've got over 200 and something stitches around my body i've had probably seven or eight broken bones i've had I got non-congenital scoliosis in my back from the parachute accident. I'm, you know, I had my uh, my thumb was all crushed and everything, so I've got uh, titanium pins and and my thumb knuckle and everything. So I, I don't have any ability to do that, and I don't have any I, all the grips with the rest of the other finger. I mean, just little stuff, right? Just little mm-hmm. stuff over time. You know, broken nose, knocked all my teeth out in the front, you know, on a faster drop. So you just get a point where you're running down the road one morning and morning sir how's it going sir hey sir how you doing sir and you realize i'm a lot older than these guys these guys are like 20 21 years old they're all bright and shiny and i'm sitting there going down the road you know you know running with my weird looking gimpy move because that's all i got left and i thought you know if if all I have left in front of me is staff, staff work, this would be a really good time to punch out. I mean, I've been able to stay in a great organization being focused almost entirely on either training or being trained for combat or leading guys in combat or preparation for combat right up until this moment, which was about four months before I could retire. Okay. And my next job was definitely going to be sitting behind a desk. And that would be my job for the rest of my time if I stayed in, you know, longer. And you can retire at 20 years in the U.S. military. So I decided to do that. And when I was on that deployment over the Mediterranean, I was describing, I was at Gibraltar and I got on the submarine and I, at two o'clock in the morning, I wrote it up and made the decision and I sent the message. said, I'm going to retire at 20 and... So when I came back, they they put me in as the uh, operations officer of that team, and I basically did that job, I did that in the XO job off and on for the next couple of months until it was time to get out. Okay, and and with that mindset of making that jump, it's going to be 
quite scary for some when they've done 20 years. Did you know what your next step was going to be when you were to become a veteran? Yeah, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I started preparing for that and I took all the tests and everything and uh, even hired a company that bundles up your, by that time I had a master's degree in in business management. So they bundle up your transcripts and they bundle up your, your test scores from the, from the law exam. And then they shop you to the law schools you want to go to and they help you kind of, they help groom you and prepare you so you can get in and have a higher uh, probability. And I was at that point, they were just starting to shop the uh, package and another seal who was a Navy captain who had retired about four months earlier, came in to visit, found out from the CO that I was still there. And he mentioned that you know, I was going to be a lawyer and he came into my office, grabbed me and said, we're going to lunch. You're not going to be a fucking lawyer. <laughs> and he takes me to lunch and he tells me that he's working for an investment banking firm in Baltimore. And he goes, you don't need to go to school again. What do you want to be? What do you want to be a lawyer for? So I gave him my logic and he says, yeah, we well, can do all those things and be an investment guy without having to go to go to school again. And he goes, you want to go up there? You know, where, where do you want to live? And I said, well, actually I want to live in Maryland because my family, my wife's family, my, my, my kids and stuff, everybody had friends. My brother was up there. So yeah, I want to go up there. All right. Well, you company. The guy loves SEAL. His son had just gone through SEAL training. So he's, you know, he was hiring SEALs uh, on site and then we'll figure out what to do with you when you get there. And I'm like, Okay. Well, let me think about it. But he, he, he piqued my interest. And so I started doing a little bit of research. Again, this is way before Google was a real thing. And so you had to do it by hoofing around. So I went around to all these different investment firms in Virginia Beach, grabbed their annual reports, talked to them, asked questions and everything. And I realized that there were, there were two premier firms up in the Baltimore area. One was called Lake Mesa and the other one was... Um, the company this guy worked for that doesn't exist anymore. And um, I decided that I liked the model that like Mason had, because it allowed you to kind of be your own proprietor. You, you set up your own little shop. The other one, Alex Brown was a, uh, an initial public offering type of company. And it's focused a lot on overseas stuff. The fact that this guy who talked to me could speak, por speak Portuguese um, made him really valuable for, for um was it brazil they speak portuguese i believe so yeah okay yeah i think it was brazil yeah so he was going to go into the brazilian ipo shop and that made perfect sense because he had that edge um so i actually i actually interviewed with lake mason and they picked me up and put me into their training program so when i when i retired i walked right into a four-month training program with them to get all my licenses uh, stockbroker bonds, uh, mutual funds, uh, insurance licenses. You had to get like six different licenses and then started that profession. Okay. And just to clarify, what, what year was this that you were retiring from the military? Uh, 1995 is when I walked off the base. I was officially retired June of 96, but they give you time to, uh, look for jobs and all that kind of stuff. And I, I hadn't mm. taken any vacation or leave for a long time. So I had about half a year's worth of leave built up. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then how did you find it kind of transitioning into that civilian 
part of life. Uh, you know, you've done 20 years in military life. Yeah. So it's very different, right? So you go from being kind of the cock of the roost in, in a way, you know, you know your game, you know your you know your profession, you're steeped in everything, you're experienced beyond any requirement really based on reality, and all of a sudden you're an idiot. I mean, it's almost that quick, you know, I I hadn't managing money. I wasn't a stockbroker. I wasn't an economist. And it turned it turned out I didn't know how to sell because selling was an important part of this. Yeah. <laughs> you, had to go find, you had to go find clients. And uh, and I freaked out because I didn't know how to sell. And after a couple of days, after all the licensing, I mean, that was just being a student. But once I actually was ready to go, uh, there's no salary. You had to live off of uh, commissions and fees. The salary was only during your training period. So if I didn't find a client or if I didn't find a person and sell them to the point they became a client, I wasn't going to be able to pay my bills. Okay. Yeah. And that meant to me, that meant I was an idiot a couple of different ways. I picked a profession, I picked a company and I picked a path that I fully didn't understand the ram full ramifications. And I, for some reason, I thought they were going to give me clients to manage their money. That wasn't the case at all. So uh, I had to very quickly decide whether I was going to quit or stick stick through it at least long enough to make sure I was an idiot and couldn't do it. Or I had to become a student of, of this new thing and apprentice myself to anybody and everybody that were able to do this well. And... I decided to do the second thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it, it, I, guys that I help with transition, organizations I help with transition, I get presentations on anything coming out of the military. I, I just say, you, you just want to think about the day you started in your military career. You're an idiot, you know, <laughs> and, and you're an idiot, meaning you were hundred percent ignorant of what you had to know. And that was the military's job to fill that empty vessel, to make you a professional. And how long did it take? And I'll have guys raise their hands. How long did it take before you could fly a plane if you're a fighter pilot? How long did it take before you were a squadron commander? Before you, could, how long? And, and it's years. All right. So how many people here think they're going to be running the restaurant on day one? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and it's weird because they actually think they are because they're they're doing a transition that's horizontal psychologically, economically. They think, you know, I can, if it's a general or an admiral. I'm going to have a corner office. I'm going to have a staff. I'm going to have it. Mm. No, not going to have that. You know, and, and depending on who you're talking to, it, it, you can humble people if you want to, but you can say, you can ask a question and that's key and critical every day to business operations and business leadership. And if they stare at you, you say, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. 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 It's not impossible. If, if you want to do this, then do this. If you want to be an engineer, Go, go to school and become an engineer. doesn't matter how old you are, but you have to be an apprentice. You have to become a student again. You have to become intellectually and emotionally humble, accept that that's the way it's going to be, and then prepare and grind it out like anybody else would be going into that profession or, or starting a new business, whatever. Yeah. And then succeed. And then once you get to a point where you actually know how to bake the bread, all this other stuff you can do. All this interpersonal psychological resilience, the leadership skills, you know, communications capabilities, all that stuff, the, the ability to handle stress, it all kicks in. 
And everybody will see that. And if you're in a bigger organization, you'll start to accelerate. But you still have to learn how to bake the bread. You still have to learn, you know, the nuts and bolts of the business. And, and that, that isn't just going to be handed to you. Nobody's going to put you in charge of everything if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, go on. That was, that, was my, that was my personal epiphany. Okay. And I've, and I've seen that repeated hundreds of times since that moment in, in other people's lives and in my own. So I, I feel that way today. Okay. So you've, you've been out for 27 year, years ish. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a long time. Uh, what, what, what else have you ventured down? Have you, have you stayed in the same sector? Have you, have you changed? Uh, what, what have you done? Have you pivoted? Yeah, I did uh, eight years in the financial services. I did two years with Leg Mason, six years with the United Bank of Switzerland as a portfolio manager. That was managed money, and that was um, kind of a boutique. I didn't have to take retail people off the street or anything, so I could I could keep it very tight and and, and comfortable what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went basically nine eleven happened, and so I felt like I needed to figure out a way to jump into all that. And so I went to work for a couple of companies that were actually doing work for the U.S. government on counterterrorism, anti-terrorism, preparations, planning, essentially flipping my old my old uh, skill set of special operations mission planning, flipping it to, you know, you're the adversary, you're the asymmetrical threat. You know, how would you exploit these things, these situations, these locations, and and writing this, this up and helping, because everybody's trying to figure out where – Al-Qaeda was going to hit next and all that. So it was a very frantic period of trying to understand what might happen. And then uh, so I did work for the U.S. State Department. I did work for uh, companies that were doing work for the Department of Defense. And I eventually ended up with a, a company uh, that was pretty much focused on the Department of Defense. Got into a classified program with them. Did that for about four or five years. And then a student of mine from Buds, from my first my first tour at Buds when I was a chief, had he had only been a SEAL for eight years, got out, but he was a martial arts um, guru, a nationally known guy, created a school, was running that, and then decided to create a government contracting company. He did that, and he got to the point where he was starting to grow, and he wasn't sure how to make it grow any further. And I was leaving the company I was with. And so he had lunch with me. We talked. And um, I joined him as a partner. I was an equity partner. And uh, so we built that company up. And then in 2015, we sold it to the employees, which is a thing in the United States called an ESOP. So you basically get a bank or a private equity firm to pay the owners out. And then the private equity firm's loan or the bank's loan is paid from that point forward by the company. But now the employees all own 100% of it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the uh, private equity firm said I had to stay because I was the, the president and chief operating officer. Um, they didn't tell me that until the very last minute because I was going to do other things. And so I said, all right, how long? They said three-year contract. And so I said, yep, and I'm still there. Okay. All right. Okay. But now, but now it's a bigger operation. We've got a management holding company at the top and we've got a healthcare company. We've got two government contracting companies. So, uh, I am more of a strategist in the role I'm in now 
after building up the, the healthcare company was we bought it with one one employee and 26 doctors and nurses and now it's like 23 employees and a, over 110 doctors and nurses and so uh and I didn't know anything about healthcare but that was uh that that kept me engaged f- from late 2016 to probably 2020 and then by that time I had president you know president in charge of that so I kind of floated back up to the strategy position nice nice so would you say would you say your transition to civil life is has been a success because it sounds like you've taken some good steps forward and you've pivoted where necessary and now it sounds like you're doing all right yeah, I think I think it was a success. I looking back at it, I uh, I'm a living example that there's not a linear success track. You you do what you do, and if you don't like it, plot the next thing you want to do, study it, jump, become an apprentice, become good at it, become expert at it, and then if you don't like that after a while, repeat. And yeah. sometimes opportunities are there that it makes sense that you can take skills from one job and apply it to another job. And sometimes it's skills and experience and capabilities from two jobs back that suddenly apply to the opportunity. And people get too linear and too focused on, I have to progress, you know, all the way, sh- all the way through in this perfect course of events. Life isn't like that. You talk to almost anybody who's successful. It's been around longer than 40 years. They're going to have a story kind of close to mind. They're going to be doing this for a while, then doing this for a while. Then sometimes they find themselves back doing this, you know, somebody they knew back there called them up and said, Hey, I just started this thing. Will you join me? They, you know, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, be flexible, open to change, willing to learn, be humble enough to, to know that when you start something new, you got to learn first. But yeah, I think, I think that to me is success in that that's what life's tossed my way. And I seem to have been able to surf that, surf those, those waves. Um, and then I, you know, I write books and I like doing that and, yeah, I was going to ask that because you've you've done a lot of stuff business wise, but you've also written a fair few books, I I believe. Yeah, I've written nine novels and I've published nine novels, and uh, the last one was last year, Kandahar Moon, which was mm-hmm. a fictional story about guys escaping as as Kabul was, was being shut down uh, too soon, and they're lost and basically running all around, being chased by everybody. Um, the uh, Two business books, be nimble and be visionary. And I I am actually as I'm sitting here tomorrow, I will finish the 20th chapter of Be Different, which is the third business book that my publishers signed me up on, which will come out probably mid-24. And uh and then I think I'm gonna hold off on the business. That's three business books that basically one's about business leadership, one's about business strategy and and planning, and this one's about creativity, innovation, and things like that. I think that's the trifecta for now. I'm going to go back and think of writing another novel because those are a lot more fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let, let's focus on uh, a couple of books that I've got in front of me. Um, okay. So the business, one of the business ones is the Be Visionary. Uh, so that's what I've got in front of me. Um, so the crazy thing is that my camera focuses better on the book than it does on my face. Interesting. Um, so what can you share about this book? Um and and why you wrote this one in particular? Oh, that's the second book. The uh, it came out this January. When I wrote the first book, Be Nimble, there's a an area I, I use beta readers, and for people that aren't familiar with that, it's like beta testing something. So, 
a beta reader is somebody you can either send the entire manuscript to and usually send two or three people. They're usually your audience. So if you're writing about airplanes, you want to send it to pilots or mechanics or somebody who knows about airplanes. You want them to be critical. You want them to read through it and say, that's BS. That doesn't make sense. You know, you kind of waffled here or detailed here. You lost me. And you take all that feedback and you decide whether or not you want to address those shortcomings. Um, in, in my case, what I do, both with the novels and the business book, is I send them out chapter by chapter. So I have two or three CEOs. Uh, one is a technology guy. He's got over 32 patents. Um, one guy is an actual uh, former uh, president of a company. He's also a former Navy War College Marine colonel history professor. These guys are, are comfortable telling me that my baby's ugly. So that's why I like the fact that that they're willing to do this. I'm not asking them to edit. I'm asking them to read, and if they think I'm off base or whatever, to call me out on it. But I do it on a chapter-by-chapter -chapter basis. So in one of these chapters on the first book, both of them, or three of them, said the same thing, which is not always normal. They said, when you start talking about converting a vision or conceiving a vision, converting that into a strategy and taking the strategy and converting it into workable concepts and then eventually an operational plan to execute, that whole thing there, nobody's talking about that. They don't teach it in college. They don't teach it in companies. When you, you elevate up to a certain point in a company, you're just supposed to do it. You're just supposed to be the strategy guy. And you, nobody's ever explained to you exactly how to do it. That would make a great book all by itself. I would buy and read that book. So I said, all right. And, and I, I didn't have any intention of writing a second business book. Okay. But after I, you know, because what the way that when you write books like this, you write them once or two, you know, two or three drafts. Then it goes to the publisher. So you, once you stop touching that book, you don't see it again. I mean, it gets released like, you know, 14 months later or something. And that's usually when everybody wants to ask you, everything about the book and you're, you're already going to do another book. And so I've actually had to listen to my books on audio from time to time, just to refresh what the hell I said. Yeah, Cause it was two or three years ago when I actually yeah. started writing those chapters, you know? Yeah. So be visionary was born out of that, that critique, which was a positive critique. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized they're right. I mean, companies don't bring in junior managers and start teaching them, the basics of strategy or the basics of, of how to conceive, you know, directional change in a business. And they don't do it in, they don't do it in college for sure. So what the hell? So I decided to write, be visionary. And what does it focus on? Is it having those visions about where to go next? Yeah. So it starts off like be, be nimble starts off with, it's okay to be agile and nimble and to not just follow the crowd and follow the rules all the time because the world's changing all the time. And most of those rules were made for a different time, for a different set of circumstances. So get yeah. comfortable with that. You know, that, that so I start out that book that way. I start be visionary the same way. Right. Being a dreamer, you know, being a wide-eyed dreamer, if you think about it, it's usually given a kind of a negative context. A wide-eyed dreamer isn't taken seriously. They're not practical people. They're not, you know, serious. But that's not necessarily the case. You can be a wide-eyed dreamer and be a practitioner of, of implement, implementing those dreams. So I started thinking about that and I lead it in the book saying it's okay to dream. 
it's okay to kick back. You did it as a kid and then it got beaten out of you by society, right? And the, the by, by the second or third chapter, I think I made the case that it's okay. And also it's not something that only like a Steve Jobs can do. You don't have to be an artist living on a mountaintop. Uh, you don't have to, you know, have to be any of these weird things. That, that That's not the requirement. The prerequisite is just changing your attention span and changing the, the, the distance that you think about life, looking out to the horizon. And if, if I said, I'm going to give you an all expense paid vacation for two months and you're not going to lose your job. And you can go to anywhere as long as it's in Central America. And you sat down, you would start planning and you would plan for this contained future in detail. What do I want to do? What would be fun? Where would I like to go? You'd ask people, I mean, you'd start contemplating the future in a very methodical way. You'd yeah. eventually have a concept of what you want to do. Then you start putting in the nuts and bolts. Then you start locking it down and then you'd execute. So people know how to do it. They just don't apply it to their life or to their businesses. So that's what Be Visionary does pretty much for the rest of the book. It also explains, because in, in at least in American business schools, in the last couple of years, there's this, this love affair with optimization. That's why the subtitle is mm. strategic leadership in the age of optimization. So optimization is explained as hyper detailed measurement of the past displayed in dashboards. So you can see where you've been with the hypothetical, I guess, advantage that if you know where you've been, it'll, that'll tell you where you're going to go. The problem is when you're driving down the street and you take a right and you don't know there's a teenager who's drunk driving 100 miles an hour the other direction, when you take that right, you don't know where you're going to go. When where are you yeah. going to go? You're going to go to the front end of that teenager's car. The universe is like that. Life is like that. Business is like that. So if you never take time to look around the corner, if you never take time to look a little bit further out or look 360 degrees at your circumstances, your environment, your, your industry, your competitors, you just don't be blindsided over and over again. You'll be like somebody that's meticulously staring at the railroad track one step at a time, analyzing every inch and never looks up to see that bright light coming at him at hundred mm. miles an hour. It, it, that's just the way it is. So optimization yeah. focuses on that. The book kind of explains that there's a, there's a good place for optimization. And I use the metaphor of, of an infantry squad in there. Infantry squad is taught to advance to take the critical hill that is in a position to allow some other operational unit to move forward. They have to seize that hill, take it from the enemy. They're taught to get there, secure the hill, report they've secured the hill. Then they're told to dig in, check ammo, check if anybody's wounded, make sure they got a head count and prepare for the next order to advance. But the first thing they do is they dig in and prepare for, for the counterattack. So if you think about that, the vision strategy part is the seizing the hill, knowing what the hill is, and then seizing the hill. It's sloppy, it's messy, it's chaotic. You get there. The optimization part is the second step. It's not actual optimization as a strategy because that's foolish. It's optimization is what you do once you seize the hill. You clean things up, you tighten things up, you put all your systems and your processes and your your rules in in, in place, and then you start thinking about that next hill, and you do it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not the way a lot of leaders are, are being groomed and trained and uh, 
the media is basically saying that you should be lauded and applauded if you're able to regurgitate what happened two weeks ago. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it'd be a useful book for, for a lot of people out there. Um, so. so what about the other book then, the, the, the Kandahar Moon? You said that was your uh, most recent book. So this yeah. is it here. Uh, yeah, so it's got the, is that the that's seal? The, that's the seal emblem, yeah, called the trident, yeah. referred to as the trident. The, it has the elements of sea, air, and land there. Um, so that's the fifth and final book in a series of seal novels that takes a um, a young officer in the very first book and, and takes him all the way through combat and success, and then eventually he's cashiered out because of all of his um, his uh, combat wounds, and then he kind of comes to depression, almost becomes uh, suicidal or becomes suicidal. And then he has uh, one of the books is all about him redeeming himself because he has to help a guy whose daughter has been kidnapped. And then, then there's two books after that. Kandahar Moons, as I mentioned earlier, is about the same character going into Kabul, basically to um, help escort a, a corporate executive out of Afghanistan. But he gets caught by the, uh, the explosion that shuts down the Kandahar airport and basically accelerates the U.S. Um, departure from Afghanistan. So now he's stuck. And he's got this ward, this this uh, executive, and he's got to try to get her and an interpreter and two other guys that are uh, former spec ops guys out of Afghanistan. So that's what that book that you showed was is all about. Okay, okay. So with this, these two books and, and, and all your other books, where, where's the best place people can look to purchase, uh, get it ordered? Sure. All the books are on Amazon.com, but if you go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, there are links to my articles, to my speaking, all that stuff. Also, at the bottom of the homepage, there are the covers of these books, and the um, it covers my sci-fi series and of the SEAL series. And if you click there, it takes you right to the point of purchase nice nice cool great stuff great stuff well uh marty i think that brings us to the end of your episode um we do have this moment in the podcast where we'd like to get uh advice from from the veteran that's been on the show so for for yourself it'd be great to hear your advice and it's always good to start off with advice for people that are thinking of joining the military and that might not be the SEALs. Uh, that might be a different part of the military itself or even a different country. Any advice for people thinking of joining? Well, the one thing it'll do is it'll ground you in reality. Now, you may already be grounded in reality because of the way your life has, has uh, unfolded to date. But the reality that, that you'll be exposed to is that if you've been hanging around the same people thinking the same way, it could be your family, it could just be friends you are going to be exposed to people that think differently. You're going to be exposed to people that have lived differently and lived in different places and are thinking differently. And I think that is a, a mind expanding and a maturing process that very few other professions would ever give you an opportunity to experience. The, even if you just do four years, it doesn't matter what service or what you do in the service, you're going to get the benefit of that. The second thing is, is that, I think there's too little these days of an altruistic sacrifice of personal time to a greater good. So if you're going to do something that 
uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're laying your life on the line. It means that you're helping support a huge infrastructure at some place at the pointy end of the spear, somebody is laying their life on the line to defend people that should be defended, that need to be defended. All the people that are running around that you see every day that are pretty clueless about the threats that this world has and uh, has to offer, that you're a part of that. You're a part of that greater good. You're part of that. And that sacrifice is your time. And in, in some cases, four years of your youth. So I think that's another kind of compelling reason to do it. The third one is you're going to learn things that you'll be able to use and apply for the rest of your life. You are going to be a more mature person. No, no doubt you'll be a more mature person. You will be better at communicating. You'll be better at handling stress. You'll be better at, at um, learning. You become a learning machine in the military. They, they're very good at training people and sustaining training of, of people. And you will see examples of, if you're not a leader, you'll see examples of leadership that you may like or may not like, but you'll see a lot of it. So you get a lot of exposure to different styles. And all of that is a great springboard for after the military in, in any profession or if you mm -hmm. want to run your own business. Yeah, some great advice there for sure. Um, and and you mentioned there the last bit there for when you're transitioning back to civilian life. Have you got any advice for veterans? And that might be people that have left multiple years ago or people that are about to transition out from the military. Yeah, it's along the same lines what I said earlier. It, that Life's not linear and it's not incremental. That there's very few people that have uh, successful stories that A went to B, B went to C. So take that kind of out of your head, explore what you want to do, think about what you really love to do, see if you can make enough money to, to feed yourself or your family at doing it, and then look look into what are the credentials, what are the prerequisites and requirements, whether it's vocational, educational, whether it's just practical experience. If you can do this before you get out, great. Do it for six, seven months before you get out. Explore everything you can. Once you get out, you know, make a commitment to something, and then just like you did in the military, Say, okay, I'm going to do this for three years. I'm going to make a run at this. And remember, you're going to start out, just like in the military, as, as a, a neophyte. You're, going to, you're not going to know anything. And, but you have to become a student. You have to stay humble. And you have to become an apprentice of all the skills. And, and then you will get to a point where you either like and enjoy what you've done and where you are, and you'll continue. Or you'll decide, man, maybe I should do something else. But you've got a long life ahead of you. So you can make a lot of these switches and changes over the, over the course of most people's lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so great advice. Really good advice. And I think looking at it as a three-year time period is a real good, uh, it's a good stint to, to really know if it's right or wrong for you. So yeah, awesome advice. Um, but Marty, thank you very much. That brings us uh, to the end. Uh, how was it for you coming on the show? And uh, you mentioned earlier off-air that this is the first podcast you've done. So how was it for you? Um, the longest one I've done. Yeah. Yeah, and and I don't feel like it's been a long one, so you must be pretty oh, good at asking <laughs> questions. Yeah, I, I'll say, I think say that was, bit I again because uh, yeah, say that bit again because I think the internet's given up on us. So sorry, what, what was your answer to that question? <laughs> I said it's the longest one I've ever done, but you must be a pretty good uh, host because I don't feel like it's been a really long ah. interview. Well, there you go, there you go. Uh, so that, that, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that definitely. Um, but thank you so much for sharing everything you have and, and what you've gone through in your time in the military and also now that you're, you're transitioning out into civilian life um, and also giving up some of your time. 
you mentioned it's the longest one you've done. Uh, but I'm just very thankful that you've given up some of that time to talk to the show and share your experiences. So thank you for all that. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. No problem at all. And our last thing, I say this to all my guests. Thank you for your service. Thank you. And thank you for your service. No problem at all. Uh, I'll do it all again as well. <laughs> Thanks, bye. It's been great. This has been Military Veterans Podcast. Out. Hi, this is Gav. Thanks so much for listening to the end of this episode and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. But uh, I would love to just give you the insight into being able to support the show through uh, Patreon. Uh, You can go to patreon.com forward slash military veterans podcast or you can follow the links on the website or even social media. And this way you can support monthly. Uh, There are a few tiers you can choose. Uh, They start at £3 a month and they go up if you were to support with £5 a month, you actually get a behind-the-scenes kind of recording, which is once the episode has been recorded with me and the veteran, then uh, we do a little bit of a chin wag, and uh, that's actually that's actually quite fun. So it'd be awesome if you could maybe have a listen to some of those uh, just by supporting uh, with £5 a month. But either way, uh, please uh, share the show with, with a friend or someone you know that might enjoy it. Uh, and also remember, there is the video part as well, which is over on YouTube. So thanks very much for anything that you've done with supporting or listening and uh, take care. Bye-bye.